Hello everyone, and welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast, with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. Alright, welcome everybody. My guest this week is Mike, who's in Taiwan. So, uh, my first question is, Mike, what the hell are you doing in Taiwan? Uh, <laughs> so, I came to Taiwan uh, 14 years ago, nearly, in uh, 2005 following my uh, postgraduate uh, work in Edinburgh. Uh, while I was there, I had uh, a couple of uh, Chinese friends, one from uh, Qingdao in the north of China, and one from, I think it was from Shandong, which is a slightly different area. And uh, we would talk every now and again about uh, China and about the, 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 uh, the differences between China and, and the Western countries. And... Uh, occasionally the subject of Taiwan would come up. And I remember Jackie in particular getting angry, one of my Chinese friends, Jackie, getting angry. He was an, he was an engineering student. The other right. friend was uh, Hong, and she was a PhD student in the landscape architecture department. And I was to help her with her uh, thesis, because she'd, she'd write it in English, but of course it would be broken English, and she'd ask me to help her out to yes. fix it. So. We would occasionally talk about Taiwan, and I, I find it fascinating because um, you know that they would they would say things like, "Why doesn't Ta- why don't Ta- the Taiwanese want to be part of China?" And uh, you know they'd get angry if I if I'd said, "Well, you know they, they don't want to be part of China. Why can't you leave them alone?" And they'd be um, yeah. you know they'd get angry. They'd be like, "If China if Taiwan declares its independence from China, then we'll attack chi- uh, Taiwan," and you know all this kind of nonsense. So. I thought it was very interesting, and uh, towards the end of my postgraduate uh, work in Edinburgh, I wasn't sure, I wanted to quit, which I did, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next, and so... But what were you studying in Edinburgh? So I was doing, um, I was working for uh, an institute called the Open Space Institute, in uh, which was... Right. Which was a... Uh, a joint venture between the Edinburgh College of Art and Harriet Watt University. So you've got an arts college and an engineering uh, university. Okay. And I was working on I before I before I joined, I already mapped out a uh, a research project, which was an outgrowth of my undergraduate thesis um, while I was at Durham, which was uh, the the my undergraduate degree was in applied psychology. I had a okay. I had a um, a research project already mapped out that I'd already planned out myself um, to do with what you would. I suppose you could vaguely. What I was really interested in was attention, and okay. Also, what what is sometimes referred to as environmental psychology, or at least it used to be referred to as environmental psychology. I don't know what what it's like now. Um, and so I was really interested in um, Durham Cathedral and Durham Castle, and how, when you enter these 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 buildings, you can get uh, a pamphlet which tells you about the, the history of the building and the history of uh, the bishops and this, that, and the other. But the information, the way it's presented, is very sort of sparse. Uh, it's um, just a pamphlet, basically, and. Yes. And, often, and, and, and there's not really too much um, work gone into it. You know, you can you can see that somebody's knocked it up over the course of a week or two, 
um, you know, and that's it, basically. So I was interested in, well, how could you, could you redesign that in a way to direct, to direct attention uh, to certain features of the, the castle and of the cathedral um, in a way that would make the experience better, better for the people who, really? who were there. So I was interested in that, and I joined the uh, Open Space uh, Institute in Edinburgh in 2002 after having an interview. I, I, I can't remember. I think the interview was February. I can't remember now, but I joined uh, in 2002, and I was interested in, in, in this particular area that I'd mapped out, but they were interested in... Um, they pushed me towards uh, other areas of research that I wasn't particularly interested in. So okay. I, I, I got a bit dis disillusioned with it, and towards the end I wanted to quit, and I did eventually. And I wasn't sure what to do next. I had these two Chinese friends. We would occasionally have conversations about Taiwan. So I decided, uh, let's go get a job in Taiwan. So I, I jumped at the first job that came up, which was teaching English in a, in a school. Uh, in Taipei, so I went, took the flight to Taipei in 2005, and uh, I've been here ever since. So, so hang on, you were you were friends in the UK with two hardcore nationalist Chinese people who <laughs> wanted to invade Taiwan, and you thought, right, because of this, I'm going to go and live in Taiwan. Are you still friends with these people? Uh, I, I don't, I haven't, I've lost touch with Jackie. I, I was still in touch with Hong. Uh, a few years ago, um, so now and again I'll have an, ex an email exchange with Hong. It's been a while, so you might you might meet him in future running up the beach with a rifle. <laughs> Somehow I don't think so, but yeah, right. Um, okay, so 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 this was this was well, fifteen fourteen years ago that you arrived in Taiwan. So what did you do when you arrived? So when I arrived, there was a school. Oh yeah, you said yeah, yeah. you were teaching English. Yeah, yeah, there was a school. They gave me a job, and I was. They asked me to move from Taipei to Kaohsiung after a week, a week's orientation. I said, okay. And I remember at the time, uh, some of the foreigners who were there, like Americans, and they said, um, oh man, they've asked you to go to Kaohsiung. Oh, dude. And I was like, well, what's, what's, why? what's wrong with Kaohsiung? And they said, dude, the pollution, the air pollution, it's terrible. I said, really? Yeah, it's the industrial heartland. It's, you know. So um, they said this, all this stuff about Kaohsiung, it'd been nasty and everything. I got on the plane, Flew down to Kaohsiung, um, and it, to me, it struck me as exactly the same as Taipei. That the air quality is exactly the same as Taipei, no different. Um, okay. So uh, that was funny. But I I moved down to Kaohsiung. Uh, they put me up at the school in Kaohsiung, a branch. This was a uh, franchise. They had branches all over the country, and um, I lasted about two months there. I quit that. Uh, that's a whole other story in its own right. Um, and then I right. Uh, I'm kind of intrigued. Now. Oh, that was that was a nightmare. <laughs> so what happened was, if I can try to keep it brief, uh, the schooling Gaoshong was run by um, what we would call a pocket Hitler. This little woman, Bonita, and she was she was something else, and she took an instant disliking to me. Lord only knows why. She was Taiwanese. Taiwanese. Uh, took an instant disliking to me, and I had to leave. I had to get out of it. 
I, I, fair I, enough. I'll yeah, give an example. Okay. I'll give an example. And one of the one of the other fellows who was there as well told me that she did exactly the same thing to him when he first arrived. And so it's apparently it's not just me. It's apparently it's a, there's a bunch of people before me who've had the same treatment. And uh, I'll give an example. The apartment that we were staying in, it was me, there was another lad from England, Jonathan, and um, in my apartment there was a, uh, I had to share with this, this lad from South Africa. So this South African lad, uh, Hans was his name, he, he was gay, and he had a Taiwanese boyfriend. And the, the first... Right. I, I forget when it was now, but it, was, it wasn't very long after I'd arrived. He and his Taiwanese boyfriend split up. The Taiwanese was going to go to the United States. He was going to go to California. So Hans was, was upset. He went out drinking with his friends after he bought his boyfriend had left to go to uh, the States. I'd stayed in because I didn't have any money. I'd stayed in and I was reading my book and just you know drinking water or whatever. And I, I went to bed. Four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, something like that. He comes back. He's absolutely plastered. Um, he stinks. He absolutely reeks of alcohol. He comes into. He knocks on my. He comes into my room. He's crying. He's upset. He's. Uh, he's. You know. He's just. And he's. He's out of his mind. So I'm trying to get him. I'm. I'm like oh, there, there, there. You know. Trying to be nice to him. Trying to get him to go back to his bed. So I'm giving him a hug and trying to tell him. You know, everything's all right. Go back to bed. So I'm doing that. And then I eventually get him to go back to his room to go to, go to bed. I then to go take a shower, go downstairs to the uh, school. I have to teach a class at, at yeah. 8 o'clock in the morning. So I go down there. I'm in the office. At, I'm the first one in the office at like um, just before 7. I'm getting my materials ready. Um, I've had a shower. I've got my shirt on and everything. I'm, you know, it should be looking presentable. Uh, Jonathan comes down shortly after me. So he's sitting next to me. So he sees what's, what's going on. Jonathan is the other lad from England. And, um, right. Benita walks in after a little while. She takes a sniff of the air. She walks up to me and she says, she says, Michael, let me give you some advice. Don't drink so much. And then she walks up. Yeah. And um, <laughs> Jonathan looks, because Jonathan knew, he knew what, what, what was going on, because obviously I, I just told him. And he looked across at me like, what? So... That was it. I mean, and later the, the same day, later in the afternoon, Hans had to come down to teach his class, and he was still drunk. Like he, could, he was, he was, he was right. still drunk. He was, you know, um, beetroot face, yellow eyes, couldn't walk straight. And she didn't say a word to him. She didn't say a word. So I was like, at that point, I just said to myself, fuck this shit. I'm, I'm out. I've got to get out. Right. So that's what happened. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's fair enough. It's, it's funny because you're the... You're the third guest in a row who's been on this podcast who's who's turned up overseas on the back of uh teaching english overseas yeah it seems to be a pattern here and i i I didn't i didn't know any actually i knew andy was a a teacher but i didn't know i didn't know ben or you were teachers yeah this seems to be a popular route overseas from the uk you know you you fancy going over? You fancy going abroad? You don't know what else to do, right? Let's go and teach some uh, foreigners English. Yeah, well, was it David Hume? Uh, I think it was David Hume said in one of his books. Um, you know, you could make the greatest contribution to the world just by teaching English, because because, right. because so much had been accomplished in the the Westerns in the, the English speaking world. So anyway, 
So what did you, what did you do after the after that? What did you decide to go and do? Did you carry on teaching, or did you do something else? I carried on teaching. So at, at that time, um, the rules were different to what they are now. So if so, I was on an ARC, which is an alien residence uh, certificate, and your work permit to have that residency is um, tied to your uh, uh, the, the visa. And the visa is, it depends on the work permit. So you, in order to, course, to have yeah. the visa, you have to have the uh, the, the job. So if yes, yeah. if you leave the job, you 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 no longer your visa is going to be cancelled. Yeah, that's common pretty much yeah. anywhere. To be honest, so, you can't just wander around on the, the first visa you get. Yes. Yeah. So so what I had to do was quickly find another job before I quit. So I went. Yes. So I, I started going around looking for jobs, and um, and I found. I forget how I found it, but I found an adult uh, school, English school, uh, downtown, and uh, I walked in, and they just immediately off the boss. She immediately offered me a job. She was like, "Yeah, I'll hire you." Right. And um, you know, I showed her my diploma and everything, and she was, she, "Yep, I'll hire you." And uh, I said, "Well, you know, I do have this situation with this other school. I'm, I haven't quit yet, but I want to quit." And so you. Maybe it's a bit tricky to manage the papers. I'm not quite sure what the process is. And she said, don't worry about it. We'll handle it. So they started that in motion. They, they applied for um, uh, the work permit for me and everything. And uh, I had to go to the uh, police department for the, the yep. police immigration department. And the way it worked out was that the woman um, who was working there, she must have seen a million cases like mine previously. And yeah. I explained the situation to her, what had happened at the, at the old school and this, this new school, and they're waiting for the documents to come back from Taipei. So she said, um, she said, no, it's fine. Um, the old school have already submitted the cancellation request for your visa, but it's actually, ah. to, it's actually up to the immigration office to, do, to, to cancel it. So what I'll do is I'm in charge of that, and I'll just hold on to it until you get your papers through. So she was actually bending the law on my behalf. Uh, that was nice so of her. Very, very nice. It was, I was, yeah, I was, she was very, very kind. And, um, and that worked out fine. And I got the new visa for the new school. And the new school, I worked there for the next uh, three and a half years or so. And uh, they were different because the old school was more like, uh, I guess, what, well, I remember on your podcast earlier, Ben. Ben said that he'd worked for um, that he'd done everything. He'd done he'd done all he taught all ages, and so right. the school I worked at was it was just teaching children, but this school okay was probably more like what Ben's doing. They, they, was, they used to um, I used to teach adults. I used to teach children. They would send me out to uh, elementary schools and teach a class of children to junior high schools, teach a class of children, send me out to a university, teach a bunch of um, university students, send me to companies um, around Kaohsiung City. And, um, and so I, get to, I got to know, that way I got to know the geography of Kaohsiung City uh, very well and very quickly. So Kaohsiung is the, um, or was the second city of Taiwan. So in Taiwan you have Taipei in the north, you have Kaohsiung yep. in the south, and right. in the middle you have uh, Taichung. And okay. there's also a, a second city in the south called Tainan. So the way it works is 
Taipei just means the characters, the character for like foreigners, we will say Taipei because it's spelled T-I-A, T-A-I-P-E-I. So we will tend to say... Yeah, I've just, I've just worked out you're talking about Taipei. For the last 10 minutes, you've been talking about Taipei, and I've been yeah. imagining Sorry. two different cities. Right, so we're aligned again. <laughs> so, yeah, we say it as Taipei, but here they don't pronounce it like that. They pronounce it as Taipei because Fair the character is the character for North, Bay. It just means right. North Taiwan, North Taiwan City. And, oh, okay. and then Taichung, which is the one in the middle, the character Zhong, means central and then they don't sound very imaginative no not particularly and then the one in the south where i am now tainan nan just means south so you've got right yeah there's another one uh, in the east called tai dong and it's the same thing dong means east but, but so why why is the why was the, why did you say that city you were at was the second city okay, what's happened so that city kaohsiung which is further to the south of tainan is a larger city it's it has the large port um, it yes. was the second city until last year, I think. Taichung, which is the central city, overtook Kaohsiung in terms of population. So Taichung now has a greater, slightly greater population than Kaohsiung. I forget what the numbers are, but uh, it's just slightly larger now. But for, for the longest time, Kaohsiung was always the second most populous city after Taipei. So where did all the... Um manufacturing get done because i remember right when i was a kid when i was like in the <laughs> early 80s all the plastic crap that turned up in the toy shops that my mother refused to buy was hong kong oh. it was all hong kong everything said made in hong kong my mother used to refer to it as hong kong junk this was the late 70s early 80s then probably by the late 80s early 90s it was all made in taiwan Everything said made in Taiwan. Any plastic piece of crap you got from a toy shop said made in Taiwan. And obviously that's all now made in China. So where did all that take place? The manufacturing. Okay, so the most, it would take place, it would have taken place in the same places that most of the manufacturing is done today, I would think. Uh, Which is mostly computer chips and that kind of stuff. Laptop uh, computers, motherboards. That. A lot more than that. So, oh, right. Okay. Uh, so, well, go on. So the uh, electronics... Um, industry you, you have two main centers you have uh, the what's called the science park in uh, Xinzhou which is in the north of Taiwan further south of Taipei and then the second big one is here in Tainan uh, the uh, Tainan uh, science park and that's where Taijidian the Taijidian is the um, uh, TSMC they make they make the semiconductor chips that's the biggest uh, semiconductor chip firm in the world and then you have others right. as well like UMC um, and there's a bunch of other uh, large uh, electronic companies there. But a lot of the manufacturing of, a lot of Taiwan's manufacturing is actually much smaller scale, uh, smaller and, and um, medium-sized SMEs companies. Okay. In um, Taichung, uh, Kaohsiung, Tainan, Xinjiang, but more, all across the island, but more specifically concentrated in uh, Taichung, uh, Kaohsiung, and the Tainan. Taichung probably and has these, these used to be the areas where they produced all the, all the, the plastic and the junk I years ago. I would assume so. I can't. I would assume so. That seems to be the most logical, straightforward guess. I can't confirm that for you, though. I would, 
Because yeah, it's, it seems it seems to me they 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 changed quite rapidly. Yeah, I mean at Hong Kong now, I don't know what manufacturing gets done in Hong Kong now, but you never you never see anything with made in Hong Kong no, printed I... on the side because they've got that province just over the water yeah. um, in Ch- in mainland China. Yeah. But it's uh, but obviously the t- the Taiwanese they were able to shift from probably low value manufacturing to high value manufacturing yep. pretty quickly that that change must have taken place in under 10 years probably even quicker in some in some respects because yeah they went from making water pistols and super soakers this kind of junk <laughs> to laptops because i think asus and acer they're both taiwanese aren't they yes acer and, yeah, and they're, the they're, laptop, they're the laptop in front of me now is a, is a taiwanese laptop acer yeah well the entire guts of my computer uh, oh. uh Asus, uh, Asus, uh-huh. and they're they're um, Asus. Uh, yeah, they're they're Taiwanese. So I, I'm I'm agnostic on the pronunciation of that Asus or Asus. I don't know how you pronounce it, but yeah. Well, it's probably not a Taiwanese word. It's probably just a made up word to sound good in America. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. The um, I mean, what I do now, uh, after all this time, I have permanent residency. So I have um, I I no longer. Uh, teach English to uh, in a in a small crown school for the for the children and and or go around to the the elementary schools and junior high schools and universities. I don't do that anymore. What I do now is I work for uh, small what you would call SMEs, the small companies uh, here in Tainan, and uh, it, it, there's all kinds. I mean, it's not just high end manufacturing. So I give you an example. Sure. One of the companies I work for in um, uh, Shanshan District, just up the road, is they make um, these long uh, sort of like chains, these machines, like a long chain, um, and they manu- it's uh, the machines are used to manufacture the plastic wallets that you buy in a uh, stationery store. You know, like if, if yep. you um, go to a stationery store and you want something to keep your A4 sheet clean and um, uncrumpled, you put in a plastic yep. wallet that, goes in the, that then goes in the ring binder. Well, yep. the machines that produce those plastic wallets made in this company in here in Tainan. Um, they also make, right. you know when you go to a florist and you buy flowers, the plastic yeah. wrapping, which has a peculiar shape, like a sort of almost cone, conical shape, uh, little, yeah. little uh, air holes in, same machines, or another set of machines produce those. Uh, the same company here in Tainan, small company. Um, and uh, another company that I work for in Yongkang, just a bit closer to home, um, they manufacture uh, children's toys, like little soft blocks, like Lego, but larger, yep. so that infants can, you know, they can stick it in their mouth, or whatever, and it doesn't matter, because it's large pieces, they won't, they won't. Yeah, yeah. So they make things like that. And what I do now is uh, they, they, has, they hire me to go to the company and go through marketing material, to go through uh, things that they want to put on the website, to go through contracts, to go through uh, instructions on how to fix the, the products. All of their material has to be in English because they're exporting. But because, because they're Taiwanese, they, will, they can speak in, If they have a conversation with us, uh, as long as it's something fairly um, casual and straightforward, like what did you do at the weekend, they're fine. Their English is really good. But as soon yeah. as it comes to trying to write English out in a more professional way, they come unstuck. 
partly it's it's just that you know they they're going to make grammar mistakes and they don't have the right vocabulary or but it's also the the, the most typical part is the marketing because the boss will usually come up with some slogan which sounds cool in chinese but when uh. <laughs> trying to change into english it's just weird you know so i then well the fr the, fr the french do that the french yeah. totals totals tagline is committed to better energy mm. And my first remark when I saw that was, it probably sounds better in French because no native English speaker, maybe a computer, maybe a computer that had been programmed in English, oh. but no native English speaker would have looked at committed to better energy and thought, yeah, that, that, that's it. That's what we want. Actually, that's... And it's amazing. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's, that's, that's actually pretty good compared to what I'm dealing with here. <laughs> I, I get things like, <laughs> I mean, for example, the um, uh, most recent example was... Um, most recently I can remember was uh, same company I just mentioned the company on Kang that makes the children's toys um, the, the blocks and the, the boss Roger he came up with this slogan of I forget it was exactly but it was something like um, stack the blocks and expand the love and I, oh dear. it was just oh, God, oh dear. how am I going to fix that but he was but also like he was committed to, to the, the format of, of the phrase having a, a comma in the middle you know, so they would run just right. a, a certain number of syllables. So they would be ba 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 ba. You know, like like that. But was this an internal marketing guy? Did they go externally? No, who came up with it? Or was that, this the, the the boss the, the man's boss, good idea? Yeah, that's Roger's idea himself. And uh, that's never a good idea. That's never well, a good uh, idea. The marketing companies exist for a reason. Yes, yes. So, but Roger wants to do things on the cheap. So. Um, and, you know, well, yeah. And so, so he'll, <laughs> you get a cheap slogan. He'll, he'll come up with that stuff, and then um, they'll give it to me, and I got to fix it. You know, so that's yeah. Because actually, to be fair, that they're doing that is quite admirable. Because um, there are a lot of companies that don't. I mean, Total never did that. I was most places I worked in Total over eight years. I was the only native English speaker, mm. and very, very rarely. And only it was like colleagues down the corridor, never a manager or somebody, consulted me to say, can you just read this as a native speaker to run? And and I saw professional documents, the real high-level professional uh, yeah. documents, like the annual report and the, the global marketing plans. They were brilliant. They were done by outside companies. But even the induction video you got, when you arrived in our headquarters, oh. when you sit in the auditorium, they do this thing saying, if, if the seats spontaneously combust, this is how you leave the building. That was full of all kinds of dodgy English. Oh, and I perfect, thought, yeah. why is a company of this size not just running it by a native speaker? And I, I had a mate, I might have mentioned this before on another podcast. I've got a friend who um, used to, he's a Dutch guy who used to run shopping centers in Moscow and St. Petersburg. He was the general manager of these shopping centers. Mm. And occasionally he'd, he'd get his uh, translator to write all the brochures and write the transcript for the recording. So when you ring up, you've got the menu on the phone. It says, you know, this is if you want the parking, if you want access, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff that was in English. His translator did, and it was brilliant, but he used to send it to me and say, as a native English speaker, go through this. And there was always something that you could pick up. There was always something yep. you'd say, actually, that word's not quite right. Just put, you know, put a comma in here, that kind of thing. Yep. And, and this Dutch guy could speak English absolutely brilliantly, but he realized that this needs to 
come across like it's a native. But hardly anyone does that. Yeah. You, honestly, some I, of the I, stuff I, I, I saw in Total. I can tell you why that is, or at least my theory of why that is. See, see, I used to, um, when, I, when, I, when I got my permanent residence, I realized, okay, I, got, I, I have to stop teaching English to, the, to children because um, it, it's just not sustainable for me. So I, yeah. what I initially tried to do was to get gigs at the large electronics companies, um, HMI, TIGDN, uh, uh, UMC. I tried to get these gigs at the large companies, but what I found was that it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And the, the reason it's not worth it, there's a couple of things going on. One of, it, one of them is that they're so large that they can afford to make mistakes and get away with it. Like they can afford, yes. they, if, if they have their English looking unprofessional and, and barely legible, it doesn't really matter. They can still get the contract anyway. They can still get things done anyway. Because so, their products are so competitive. Yes, uh, or because uh, for, for either because they com- their products are so competitive or because the customer doesn't have much other choice. Um, yeah, and, sure. and so they, they can get away with uh, making horrendous mistakes. It's the same thing with the, um, the governments, local government. Nas- uh, the national government here is a bit better, but the local governments are terrible. They'll, um, I remember years and years ago when I first arrived in Tainan, when I moved up from Kaohsiung, going to the old Dutch fort, because um, the Dutch were here about 400 years ago uh, in Anping, and they had a, uh, like an exhibition um, with some, uh, you know, they did some interpretive panels and materials written in English oh, yeah. and written in Chinese. And... You looked at the English, and it was clear that it was clear what they'd done. They just they they'd taken the Chinese, they'd written the Chinese version so it made sense, and then they'd taken that and just ran it th- the entire thing through Google Translate, and then just published yeah. it as is. And I was I was just like, now it didn't it didn't really matter to me because I'd already knew, I'd already read the history, I knew what I was looking at anyway, so I knew what the order of events was. And but um, I was thinking, you know, if anybody was coming here. And they were going to use this as their actual source of information. They wouldn't be able to understand the <laughs> bloody thing. It was, it was, and, and you, the question I said at the time, I, I remember saying to one of the girls there, I said, why? There's going to be, there's going to be like, you know, hundreds of um, foreigners of Americans and Brits here in Tainan. Why couldn't you just, why couldn't the government just hire one of them, pay them a few, pay them a few grand and uh, go through the English, make sure it was correct. They couldn't even be bothered to do that. You'd probably even get someone to do it for free if you got something something else out of it. If yeah. you could just do bragging rights yeah. that you could put on your CV that you did official translation for the local government. You know, it's uh, you could put. You know, it's it's and, and I mean, I did the stuff for my mate in in Moscow for free. Firstly, because it wasn't actually that much work, and secondly, you know, they they've yeah. been very good to me over the years, so uh, I didn't mind doing it for free. But it's just, I mean, you can you can always find someone to do it. Yeah. I mean, I used to do Hong stuff when my friend Chinese friend Hong, when she was uh, back when we were PhD candidates, I used to do her stuff for free. Well, I mean, she she cooked me some hundun uh, tan, you know, she she cooked me some soup or something. But but yeah, um, and they just it's because they're the government, and you know, if they make a mistake, what happens? Nothing. There's no repercussions. Well, yeah, so, I, I got that impression in total. But the thing is, is what always strikes me. I mean, take this Dutch guy again. The fact that he was thinking of this suggests that in 
other areas, he's also meticulous. Mm. Whereas if a company can't be asked with this, what else can't they be asked yeah. with? Yeah. The, 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 these st- standards are applied generally universally across an organization. It isn't that you're really, really hot on this and you can't be bothered with the rest. It's, um, it's back to the thing which I've banged on about before in other places. Why the military make you keep your boots clean? Mm. It's because if your boots are clean, your rifle's clean. It doesn't matter that your boots are dirty. It's matter that, it matters that your rifle's dirty. So they, they in, impose these standards everywhere. And to me, and this, this, this marketing people have known this for, for probably 100 years. If you receive an official marketing document with a mistake in, you lose confidence in the product because it, it's just a sign of sloppy <clears throat> yeah. attention well, to that's, detail. Well, that's the point I make now whenever I, I uh, meet people from new companies and I, I, I contact new companies to try to drum more business for myself. That's what I do now. I, I mention exactly that point that if you're making mistakes in your, in the English for your marketing material, customers are not going to have so much confidence in your product. They're thinking, well, if you're making mistakes with the English, what else, what other mistakes are you making? So exactly. I, maybe you've yeah. designed it right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I make this point constantly. Um, but you remind me of, uh, uh, something I tweeted the other day, uh, on Monday, just this last Monday, one of the comp- uh, bosses of one of the companies I worked for, uh, we'd finished work, and um, he was t- he'd been talking to uh, a student who was going to join the cadets, and they'd been talking about um, uh, rifles among other things, and I and so I, st- I joined in with the conversation, and the student was going to go to the Fengshan Academy, which is in, down south in Kaohsiung, uh, to. Cadet right. Academy, and I mentioned that in my one of my previous jobs, uh, I'd been there, I visited there, and I I taught an English class there, and I remember being stunned by because what you had to do was when you arrived at the academy, uh, you had to park at the front, and then they made you walk. You had to walk uh, several kilometers, or I forget how far it was, a couple of miles, to the building where. Uh, the event was, ha- was taking place. And so as I was, as I was walking across through the, uh, the, the, the landscapes, the, the gardens and everything, I saw a, a bunch of um, cadets marching to a gunnery, an armory, right, with the rifles. And there was, a, yep. there was just this one fella handing out rifles to these cadets. The cadets would take the rifle and they'd, they'd get back in line. And what I, I remember, I was shocked because I used to be in the uh, Territorial Army, the, the British the Army Reserves, uh, okay. for about a year or so, when I was 17 to about 18, before I went to university. And when I went to the Armory, every time we went to the Armory, there's a procedure. The guy who's handing out the rifle, before he takes the rifle, the first thing he does, check the safety catch, make sure the safety's on. Yep. And then you go check. Shows check, you it's empty. Check the belt. You go, he shows you it's empty. You check the he checks the belt. Shows you it's empty. Make sure the safety catch is on. Hands it to you. You do exactly the same thing. You check the safety catch yourself, yes. even though you've just seen him do it. You check the belt. Make sure it's empty. And then you go away. And then the first thing you do is you disassemble the rifle and clean it. It's you disassemble right. the rifle. You clean it. You reassemble it. And you should, we should do that constantly. Every time we get a rifle, disassemble it, clean it, put it back together again. Um, we were doing that, you know, the point being that doing that so often meant that it became second nature. 
And so I, I've yeah. seen these guys just taking these rifles and just lighting up like, you know, like they're just getting a, you know, a, a, a piece of pants. A, a pack lunch. Yeah, a pack yeah, lunch. yeah, a sandwich. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, um, I mean, I was, I was stunned by that. I, was, I thought that was very, very slow. But that, but that, that's it's it's why though it's 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 why um are you still? In fact, I only sort of thinking about this when I was working in a, a professional environment where I saw the standards slipping. Where I started to, because I did time as an army cadet, and yeah, of course, I understood the basics of it then. But I didn't realise how much that is also required in the civilian world. Um, I remember arguing with a quite senior guy in Total who he was basically. To prepared to ignore all the prevailing standards and laws and company policies in order to achieve something he wanted to do in a particular field of HR. Mm. And I said, well, if you're just going to dismiss this, what else are you dismissing? Are you ignoring all the safety stuff as well? Mm. Which would explain a lot about our safety record. And he went, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're mixing things. I said, I'm not. I said, standards are applied across the board. If you've decided, because it's convenient, that you're going to ignore the top-level company policies on personnel matters because it's convenient to you, you'll be doing this in every other area. You'll be doing it in the finance. You'll be doing it in the technical stuff. You'll be doing it in safety. This, you've, you've just laid down a marker how you approach uh, standards in general. And he didn't get it. He seemed to think that he was clever enough to pick and choose sort of these the, these these standards that could be applied. And they can't. Of course, he was French, which is what they're known for. Whereas the the, the when you see a really slick operation, like for another example, is uh, you go into a Hyatt hotel, and I know people who used to work in the Hyatt hotels. They put these standards in place right down from what shades of makeup the receptionists can wear they basically give them a list of the makeup that they can wear you know these are the products these are the manufacturers these are the shades because they they want these standards to be applied it is look it is but then that's the that's how the hyatt position themselves obviously the the ibis budget doesn't do that but if you go into a park hyatt and you're paying a grand a night you expect uber high standards everywhere and the other thing is uh why they partly why they did it because they look they 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 found that this was in the middle east they found girls were turning up behind the receptionist looking like hookers um all the big loopy earrings all like plastered in makeup and they were like no we don't want that this is what these are the standards we want and of course maybe that wouldn't it would be harder to impose somewhere in a like in the West where there's some law, but this was in Dubai where, you know, they could, they could say what they wanted. And that was, but the idea behind it was, was that they impose standards across everything so that when you go into your room, you find the same standards. And I've been in plenty of hotels with big names where you turn up and you think, I didn't really expect this from a hotel of this name or this price. Mm. Really? So that's kind of how they do it, yeah. So, it's, oh yeah, I've I've stayed in places where you think you know you're paying quite a bit, and it's a big name hotel, and it's a dump. Um, never stayed in a Hyatt that's been a dump. So it, it's so, and, and that's the thing. You have to, um, you, you know, you you maintain I, 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 these standards. I agree. I agree. They, 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 you really should, if you're in a competitive, especially particularly if you're in a competitive environment, 
you should try to maintain your standards across the board. I agree. It's, uh, it should be obvious. It shouldn't need to be said. It shouldn't need to be spelled out. It should be obvious. Well, if, if, you're, if your competitive, competitive advantage and your positioning in the marketplace is we are high-end and we have standards, you have to maintain them. Not everyone has to maintain them if you're not positioned there. Like the IBIS budget oh, yeah. or, you know, where it's, it's like five quid a night. Well, that doesn't really matter. It's like EasyJet. Nobody cares. They, they don't care about standards. But if you're going to charge somebody top dollar to fly first class oh well it better be damn good you know and and that's the problem i think there was that old phrase isn't there that i i picked up when i was working in a hotel in manchester that there's there's no such thing as high prices it's uh, high expectations or something right. on the grounds that customers won't be disappointed by the high price what they will be disappointed with is if they pay that and their expectations aren't met mm. i mean um so that, that's that's true I- the point that I always make when I'm when I'm um, talking to companies is uh, it, it, it why I, the point I was making earlier that I prefer the I prefer the smaller companies to the larger ones. Um, sure. Is that is that the smaller companies? There's a there's a number of advantages, but the smaller companies are in a position where they have to try to get whatever advantage that they can. Um, yep. And so and so what I'm able to do is is just exactly that, just to say, look, I can make your products look more professional um, just because the standard of English is going to be better. It's going to be it's going to look like a, a native speaker. Um, whereas the larger companies, by and large, they can they can get away with making mistakes and they don't need to they don't need, really need to care about it. So. Uh, well, exactly. That's the same. I think that's the same in any industry. An, an oil company is sloppy and inefficient as hell because they can afford to be. They got so much money. Whereas if you go down one level in the contracting chain to the engineering companies, they have to be so much more on the ball because they simply don't have the luxury of of just being having this 15 20 30 percent inefficiencies and sloppiness and they just shrug their shoulders and go back and revisit stuff so it's it's one of the reasons i'm avoiding big companies for this second part of my career because it's just i'd rather i reckon i have an advantage over my colleagues in that i can work to a higher standard than most people and that that gives me no advantage in a big company. I've discovered yeah. they don't care whether you're working to a high standard. Well, there's a slight. Com- I don't know in your particular case, but there's a slight complication with that. I think if if we were to to generalize that, which is that a lot of American and uh, European engineers, usually German engineers here, will they will work for small companies that will get contracts with uh, TIGDA, which is uh, TSMC. And right. and the problem is the. Taiwanese company that they work for, or sometimes it's even it's an American company, or uh, one particular case was a Swiss company. They, the company will tell them, okay, if you work for us, um, you will work five days a week, you get two days holiday, and various other stipulations to the contract. They then they take the job, and they find out that none of that is true, and the reason why is right. because. Uh, the company is being hired by TIGDN, which is the big, it's the big company that everyone's trying to get the, the big TIGDN contracts. The company negotiates with TIGDN. They'll say, okay, we will uh, buy our product. If you buy our product, our engineers will be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week to service 
the, uh, this, this product for you. But they don't tell the engineers that. They tell the engineers. Oh, right. right. They tell the engineers, uh, you'll be here for five days a week and you'll get two days off. But they're telling KaiGDN, oh, no, no, our engineers will be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you end up with a situation where the, uh, the American fella is, is thinking, oh, right, well, uh, Saturday's my day off now. I'll, I, think I'll, uh, I think I'll go out and see Taiwan. I'll go and do this. I'll go and do that. I'll go down to the beach, kind of thing. And then he's, he's on his way down. He gets a call from someone in KaiGDN saying, oh, yeah, we need you uh, in an hour, the next hour. We need you to come in and have a look at this for us. He's like, what? No, I'm going to the beach. He said, no, 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 no. And then he has to. There's a big, you know, a big brouhaha. He's going to call up. Yeah. Well, that's just that's just shockingly poor HR. It's that's terrible. just shockingly poor HR. Yeah. And I I found um and again soldiers will tell you this that, <clears throat> but I think it's true for, true for anybody. You don't people employees can put up with a lot of shit provided they're told in advance what it is and why they're doing it. What people hate is being exactly. told one yeah. thing and then another thing happens. and being given yep. something else yep. to do. <laughs> if they'd said to them up front, look, this this is the this is the deal. You're going to have to do this, you know, blah blah blah. Then they probably they psychologically adapt to that and decide, yeah, I'll take the job. This is what I might have to do and this kind of thing. Mm. But what you can't do is tell them one thing and then, you know, just keep moving no. the goalposts on them. That that will that will get people will just leave or they'll stop doing they the do. job. Yeah, they do. And th- that's what, of course yeah, they will. They do. So uh, I mean, I've I've had friends uh, here, American engineers, who've since they've quit, they've they've gone back to the United States, and pr- precisely that reason, um, they just get sick and tired of being of being pissed about. So yeah, yeah, and it's it's just it's just deliberate, and it, it's not something that's unforeseen. This is just, and you find this a lot actually outside the West. Is that. I mean, you saw it in, in places like Korea, but you see it all over the place in the Middle East and Africa. These guys think they're being clever by coming up with very like childlike bullshit. It's 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 not it's just not clever. They seem to think they're being, you know, that they won't get found out, or they're being clever by saying, right, you know, we we need you, we want you to work five days a week, but really we need you in seven, but we just won't tell you. It's it's a very odd kind of. It's it's almost that I put it down to guys who are the smartest guy in their own circle, thinking that the rest of the world is dumber than them, and I found that in Korea. Uh, you get these Korean guys who might be the smartest guy in the room, and they assume that the rest of the world is dumb. I, I so they start yeah they start doing things which might work in their own particular environment but completely fail with outsiders i i don't know about that but i can tell you uh was one german lad who was telling me engineer a few years ago uh he had um his company he had to go to work in japan to go to work in south korea and to come here to taiwan to work and so i asked him i said well of the three countries which one do you prefer and why he said he preferred the, the Koreans. I said, well, why? Right. He said, because um, the Japanese, when you go to Japan, his experience was, he said, when, when you go to Japan, if you have good news for your boss, his reaction is, hmm. If you have bad news for him, his reaction is, hmm, the same. They're very stoic. Yeah. But when... In, when, you went, when he went to Korea, he said, if you have good news for the boss, he's, everyone, everyone gets invited out for dinner, the, the boss is he's buying drinks. You know. If you have bad news for him, 
you'll know about it. You'll know how he feels because he'll start swearing and shouting and, you know, picking things up and throwing them around and, you know, smash. So they're more, they are more emotive. They're more, they're more emotive than the Japanese for yeah, sure. And he said he preferred the, That's interesting. He said he preferred the Koreans for that reason because he said with the Japanese, right. you, you never know where you stand. With the, the Koreans, yeah. you always know where you stand. They said, well, what about Taiwan? He said, Taiwan is somewhere in the middle. It depends. So um, That's really interesting. That is really yeah. interesting, that. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know much about the Koreans other than that. I mean, um, I've never been there. You have, so you probably know more about the Koreans. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I, I spent five weeks seconded there in 2005, just before Christmas, seconded into a Korean company in Seoul, where I was really, you know, neck deep in that stuff. Um, and then later I dealt with them, but not in Korea. But I, I worked on projects where there were big Korean companies working. Um, and I, as I might have said on one of the other podcasts, yeah, I preferred working with the Japanese simply because the Japanese are really stubborn. It's really hard to get them to agree to do something they, that isn't that is agree, in the contract. Once they agree, then they'll do it. They'll, 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 oh, it's done. You, 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 they'll get it done, yeah. Oh, once the head guy has said it will be done, you can go to your grave knowing it'll be done. With the Koreans, you spend six hours in a war of attrition. Eventually, he'll cave in. The next day, a guy will turn up who don't even know who he is, but he now says he's in charge and everything starts all over again. And that can go on. They'll, they'll do that. They'll keep that going for a year if they have to. They're, they're, they're not bothered about that. So it's, it's really hard. So you have to be... But then again, I found there's there's ways of dealing with that as well, which the French were utterly unable to do. Um, yeah, I actually found they were they were a lot more approachable. On the last job I was on with, uh, obviously it's a French client, but Korean contractor, the French were complaining about how difficult and instringent the, instringent, the uh, Koreans were. But actually, I found them all right in that particular instance. So I don't know how much of it was just going in with this preconceived idea that the, you know, the Koreans are impossible, you can't work with them. And then they were just seeing that no matter what. But I was actually having some very productive uh, conversations with the Korean management. They seemed to be quite happy to go on. The difficulty I saw wasn't, well, put it this way, it wasn't arising from them. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the, uh, the more general point that, you know, if you if you're living abroad, if you're living abroad uh, for a long time, you you have to be really careful to not ascribe a particular bad behaviors or particular problems to the country, to the to the people in general. You have to be absolutely. You've got to be careful. You know, you've always got to distinguish. Oh, well, somebody might do something particularly bad. You've always got to resist the temptation to generalize and say, well, you know, all Korean people are like this or all Taiwanese people are like this, or even to say most. You, you've, you've got to be able to think, well, you know, it's just one data point. This is just, it's just one person. Yeah. It's just two people, you know. Um, and so, like, I mean, for me, that's a really interesting thing because the, um, one of the subjects that I'm interested in, other than the, the reservoirs, which we haven't spoke about yet, but we'll get to that, was um, yep. driving. And it's it's a really interesting thing because there's of course there's this stereotype which I think is seem I would think I don't know is more prevalent in the United States than it is in Europe that Asian people can't drive right that that stereotype the Asian driver right there's a problem with um, generalizing and, and and observing particular instances of bad behavior 
and then generalizing them to the population. And you have to be careful with doing that, obviously, for the obvious reasons that just because one person behaves badly doesn't mean that the rest of the population are going to behave similarly. But on the other yeah. hand, um, it seems it seems silly to suppose that, that there are not general patterns in the of behavior in the culture. And so in driving, um, you have to be very, very careful in discussing a subject like driving. Because you, on the one hand, you want to say that standards of driving in Taiwan um, are poor. And you want yep. to be able to go into some of the reasons for that. But at the same time, you have to be very careful about the optics of that discussion. Because it can look like you're saying all Taiwanese are bad drivers and all Taiwanese, they don't know how to drive. And, you know, and it's a, it's a more, it's a, it's a really sensitive um, topic to, to, to be able to discuss accurately. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Sure. So, no, it, it is because I, um, in how I've done this before, I've written a blog post on this is that I think whenever you're, you can make sweeping generalizations about people, cultures, countries, all sorts, and I'm quite happy to do it, but you have to treat individuals you meet as different, uh, as, as, as you find them, I mean, as you find them. So, and, and I found if you make that clear up front, mm. you can get away with quite a lot because, I mean, you can go to Nigeria and say it's completely corrupt, but that doesn't mean that you're going to treat a Nigerian you meet from the outset as corrupt. You treat them exactly as you find them. So I tend to treat the individuals and the collective completely differently and not even try to equate the two. And that way you can kind of get away with it. The problem is, is when, yeah, you you I, I, you, I, I, you form an opinion of the collective, you then start making remarks about an individual that you don't know and haven't met and saying, well, it's obvious he's going to be like this. That's where you run into trouble. Well, I agree with you. The I agree with you, but the the, the, the difficulty is the uh, when you want to talk about common patterns of behavior uh, to generalize, some people can get upset at the generalization. So that even when it's sure. not applied to an individual, just the generalization is enough to make some people upset. So it's a it's a really interesting the, the the driving one is a really really interesting topic here for me but it's it's one that I'm, I'm somewhat wary of uh, just because uh, I've known Taiwanese friends to get upset at me like you could have this conversation with um, Taiwanese friends and uh, some of them will be fine they'll agree with they'll agree with me and they'll say yeah you're you're right um, and others will be they'll get upset and still others it's really it's really funny I'll give an example. One of the uh, one of the behaviors you can see if you're driving for any amount of time in Taiwan is if you have a road with uh, a T junction, a small like a one small road adjoining to a, a larger main road. Um, yep. And it's a it's a perfect ninety degree right angle. Um, there's no traffic light, and you will have a person on the small road driving into turning right or turning left into the main road and they will often do it on a scooter or a motorcycle moped at speed without slowing down and without looking to their left <laughs> right, you're going to make a right turn into oncoming traffic 
without looking to the left. And you can see this again and again and again. And why do they do well, it? My, Are they that's nuts? That's my question. Why, I, asked, I remember asking people, why do Taiwanese people do that? And I had different answers. And um, I remember one girl, she said, she said something strange. She said something about uh, it's considered bad luck if you look before you enter the main road. It's considered <laughs> bad luck. I was like, what? In what universe does that make sense? And um, I remember another conversation with uh, a woman called Sandy at another at, at uh, the uh, Nancy University I used to work at, and I remember she, I remember I forget what it was I was talking about. It was something about driving, and and I made the generalization that if you're going to drive safely in Taiwan, you have to assume it's, you're better off making the heuristic assumption that all the other drivers around you don't know what they're doing. If you make that assumption, yep. right, then you're going to be ready for anything. You're going to be, you're going to be, you know, someone is indicating, if someone is in front of you and they're indicating right, do not assume that they're going to turn right, right? You can just, you could just as well assume that they've left the indicator on and have forgotten about it or that they're... Have you ever done a defensive driving course? Uh, no, but that's another topic that's, that's interesting in its own right. Because I, I did one in Russia, and it was one of the best courses I've ever done. It was brilliant. And I still apply the principles. And that was, a defensive driving means you go out there assuming everybody is a suicidal idiot. Yeah. So exactly as you say, if you see a car waiting to pull out, assume he will. If you see an indicator turning right, assume he won't. You basically hold back and hold back and hold back and let the situation play out rather than getting involved and making an assumptions. And the underlying principle of it was let the idiot go. If you see a guy driving erratically, he's up your ass, he's going to pull out once, but just hold back, get the situation out, you know, let the situation yeah. move on. And you, he said pull over even if you have to. Right. He said the aim of it is that you get home safely and in one piece. And I took that to all around the world me when I was driving. And it is really, really good advice. And the whole thing is you should be looking down the road thinking what could go wrong? What, what is if this guy decides now to pull out? Are you going to be in a difficult situation? If yes, you should be way back from there. And it was it was. It was really good, and I applied it throughout Russia. And yeah, it saved me in a few instances it, because you just you you keep this massive distance between you and the stupid situation that might unfold in front of you. I agree with that. Yeah, that sounds great. I, that's largely what I do. Except I would say that it, here it's slightly more complex because let's uh, you're always going to go. The devil is always in the detail. So if you're driving, let's say if you're driving a moped. And, you know, what they do is on some large roads, they'll have um, the dual carriageway for the cars, which may be as many as not just two lanes, but it may be three or four lanes. And then adjoining to that, there'll be a single lane for moped traffic, which will be, there will be a barrier between the moped lane and the car lanes uh, with, some, with an avenue of trees, which looks nice, but happens to restrict you, the view somewhat. But right. you also have... Uh, T junctions. So this uh, the moped, the adjoining moped lane, is um, uh, broken up every now and again by T junctions, and some of them have red lights, some of them have 
uh, in Taiwan, they have like these uh, yellow, the, the, the traffic light is on a constant yellow, just a flashing yellow. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah I've yeah. seen them. Yeah. So you, you're driving along, and let's say that the, um, there's a T-junction up ahead, just in front of you, and it's the, the building, there's a building on the side, and the building is really, really close to the road. So the, the lane has a width of, say, six, five, let's say, like five meters, maybe that, five meters, something like right. that, not very large. You have, if you have other mopeds behind you and to your right, because we drive on the right-hand side here, if you've got other mopeds behind you and to the right, and they're coming at speed, you can't necessarily pull over. Um, you can't necessarily go faster, and you, you, you're kind of stuck. So there's a dilemma. Do you, uh, do you speed up and risk going past this T-junction with something coming out very, very quickly? You have no, um, you have very, very little uh, visual, uh, like a, a visual window to be able to see any car or any, any vehicle approaching from that T-junction behind this building. You, you can't see them until, it's the, until the last second. There's no mirror. You'll, you'll see, if he's coming out at speed, you'll see him and it'll be too late. And there'll be a collision. Well, a defensive, dri a defensive you, driving course would say you, you never, ever get on a moped. Right. Well, okay. <laughs> That's the first thing they'd say. Well, see, is, are you insane? You, you've come to our course to save your life and you want to get on a moped? <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you just hang yourself and get it over with, man? That's what they'd say at the, at the start of a defensive driving oh, yeah. course. Well, no, it, it, it only makes sense if you're in a car. Yeah. So God knows what you do on a moped. Oh, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Uh, in that particular case, this is, so there was an actual road like this uh, between uh, Niao Song and the Fong San. Uh, Niao Song, sorry, in Nancy, two places in Kaohsiung where I used to live. And I had to go to work at the university uh, every morning. I had to get there at 8 o'clock in the morning. So um, I would drive up this road. And 8 o'clock in the morning, the traffic, it's rush hour. The traffic was just, in, it was just insane. And so yep. what, what I, the way I solved the problem was I said, look, driving in the moped, and all these mopeds, it's my other American friend, Derek, he had the, um, I agree with him on many, many things, but on this point we disagree he thought it was better to follow the uh, school of fish theory and like a school yep. of fish you drive your moped and you stay among the other mopeds and, and, yeah, yeah. and you drive at a moderate speed among the other mopeds and these these people are driving along with like you know as perhaps as much as one or one or two feet distance between each other it's insane um, if, if what, what sort if, of speed? Oh, you know, like uh, 50 kilometers an hour, 60 kilometers an hour, that, that, that kind of thing. Not, in, not too fast, but enough that if once someone has an accident, someone has a problem, there's going to be a pileup pile and up, someone's yeah. going to end up uh, being taken to hospital. And sure. so uh, I decided pretty early on, I'm not going to do that. That's not for me. I'm not having that. And so what I decided to do early on, if I'm going to be driving the moped, if I can, I'm going to speed. I'm going to get ahead of the pack. I'm going to be. I'm going to be the first at every. T I'm going to be the first every time I get to a T junction. I'm going to be the first one there. Once that green light is gone, I'm checking both ways. Of course, I'm not going to assume that the traffic has stopped. I'm going to check both ways. But as soon as I can, I'm away. I'm not going to get caught right. up in the school of fish. And what I used to do on this particular road was um, I would switch over to the car lane. 
I'd drive the moped in the car lane, I'd drive ahead of the cars, faster than the cars, I'd speed, I'd go really fast, as fast as I could, and, um, and that way, I felt a lot safer, because there was nobody around me, you know what I mean, there was nobody, yeah. the, ne- the, the nearest car was, you know, like maybe 40, 50 meters or so behind me, so I felt much safer doing that, and then one day, I had to stop it though, because one day, uh, I was driving to the university, and uh, the police were there, and they were hiding behind the uh, the avenue, the trees. They were hiding behind the trees, right. and they caught me, and they pulled me over, and they said, "Do you know you're not supposed to drive on the uh, on the the, the the car lane?" I said, "Yes, yes, I know." So they pulled me over, and they gave me a ticket, and I had to pay the ticket and everything. But you know, um, but it just goes to show that uh, the design of the roads and the, the, the principles of driving, uh, it's a, such a really complicated activity, a, a really, really dangerous activity. And the, the, the common belief that most people here seem to have of just drive slowly, that's the same as driving safe, it's just not true. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting fish, that. And as soon as one, and you just go to YouTube. Just go to YouTube and you can see, yeah, you're like, you can see, yeah. you can see, you've got like five or six people driving mopeds, driving motorcycles. One person, something goes wrong. And in some cases, you know, some of these people are driving motorcycles that are 20 years old and the chain will fall off, you know, because it's just too old. He hasn't, he hasn't yeah. replaced it. The chain falls off. He's suddenly, he's stuck. And then people just pile into him. It's like the Peloton in the Tour de France yes. when someone goes down. It's, it's, it's this it's massive like, pile yes, up. Yeah. Yes, like that. And it's so, it's so obviously dangerous that uh, I don't, I've never understood why so many people seem to think that that's an acceptable way to drive. Um, have, have you ever been to Vietnam? No, I've, I've heard that it's worse. Uh, the, China, right, you, you've China, got, you've got Vietnam, a million, yeah. Vietnam, you've got a million people on motorbikes, right, heading one way up a road. And the cars are going in the opposite direction, and the mo- the mo- mopeds are parting like 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 the Red Sea yeah. around. It's like going through a river. It's basically like having a ship going through a river, and the waters sort of parting, going around the sides of the ship, and then coming together again at the back. It's absolutely insane. I did a years ago. I went on a holiday to Vietnam, and I ended up hiring a car with a driver. And he was driving us around somewhere uh, from, I think we went from um, Ho Chi Minh down to the Mekong Delta. So it was a few hours in the car and it was so stressful. He was just, I mean, he wasn't stressed. He didn't care, but I was in the back yeah. and it was just this, there was this sea of motorbikes, millions of them yeah. just coming towards you and just at the last minute swerving around. It was, at least in, in Nigeria, it wasn't a problem because you were just jammed in traffic. Right. You couldn't crash into anything because you're not moving. Yeah. But in, in Vietnam, this was happening at, at some speed. He was just doing about 60 mile an hour with his just hand permanently on the horn. Yeah. Uh, and these mopeds were just utterly oblivious. Just, you know, they, they, um, they just don't pay any I'll, attention. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one story. Years and years ago when I, when I was working, so that company I mentioned earlier, that um, the second company I worked for in Taiwan, in Kaohsiung. So I left the, the, the children's school and I went to work for the adult school. One of the gigs that he asked me to do was... Um, I had a number of other gigs at the same time. So I was working at one school uh, downtown in the middle of Kaohsiung City. I finished at 5.30. And they wanted me to be at Xiaogang, which is uh, outside the city, sort of south, near the airport. 
um, at a yachting company. There's a, a big company, Horizon. They manufacture yachts, you know, like for the millionaires. Nice. And so they wanted me to be there by six o'clock. And I said, well, it's a bit far, isn't it? Could, could you not make it like 6.10 or something? I said, no, it's going to be six o'clock. So, so the boss said, she said, don't worry, don't worry. We, we, we've got an idea. We'll send you a taxi, Michael. That'll be easy for you. We'll send you a taxi. We'll pay for it. We'll send you a taxi. I said, oh, really? Okay. So, um, so they sent me this taxi to pick me up at 5.30, downtown Gaoshan. And it was this dude with uh, the, what we call, here in Taiwan, we call it Bing Lang, which is, uh, in English, we say beetle nut. It's like this, um, there's a particular tree here in Taiwan that it has um, this small nut, this small fruit. And what they do is they, they wrap it in leaves and they sell it at these um, truck stops. And you chew right. it. And I've had, I've had it, I tried it a couple of times years ago, and it's, it's weird because at the beginning, it's disgusting. It tastes absolutely foul. <laughs> but once you get through that, once you, once you get through that, that chewy part at the beginning, um, once you get through that, the taste changes. It is a second taste, and it's a, it tastes a lot better, and, and you get a bit of a buzz out of it. Um, right. And it keeps you awake. But what it does, if you, if you, eat, if you continue to eat this stuff, chew this stuff, uh, regularly over the long term, it turns your teeth red. So you get these horrible oh, red, God. red stained teeth. It's disgusting. So this uh, taxi driver turns up. He's got the Bing Lang mouth, and his car—it's older than me. It's like this old uh, Datsun Nissan thing from the eighties or early nineties or something. Yeah. So not older than me, but you know what I mean. Pretty old. Yeah. And rickety old thing. And he, he turns up. He's slightly late. Get in the car. And uh, there's no seatbelts in the back. There's the seatbelt, but there's no fastener oh, for it. God. There's the seatbelt, but there's no fastener. <laughs> well, what's yeah. the fucking point of that? So anyway, so he's... Did you say hold it across yourself? <laughs> uh, so he's, he drives. What he did was, because uh, at that time, this is the mid-2000s, so Kaohsiung at that time, there was construction work going on throughout the city to build a new um, metro system. And so half the roads were, you know, they'd been made a lot smaller because they got all this construction work going on, right, uh, underneath the roads. And so all the traffic has been forced through these tiny little narrow apertures, you know, where the road has been squeezed yeah. because of the construction work. On it. So he's driving. The, so it's rush hour traffic. It's 530. You've got obviously all lots of other people finished work at the same time. But you've also got kids leaving school. And these all these kids on bicycles and uh, grandmas <laughs> as well. And he's driving past them, missing them within, like, within an inch or two of hitting them at speed. He's squeezing through these little narrow uh, sections of road to try to get to the freeway. I'm sitting there. I, I'm like, I, I can barely look. I can barely bring myself to look. Crapping myself. And there's no seatbelt. You know, I'm just sliding around in the back. He gets onto the freeway, and then he's, he's even worse. He's slaloming in between all these big articulated lorries. You know, like squeezing in between these lorries to get, to get through more quickly rather than going on the outside. Or, and I'm just... It was like a scene from a film. And I was, I yeah, was terrified. Yeah. I was absolutely terrified. And the first time, I'll never forget it, the first time. And then he got me to the company on time. I was stunned. I couldn't believe he got me there on time. And I was still alive. I was stunned. And, and yeah. then he had to pick me up going back, and it was much easier because there's less traffic on the, on because the, it was later at night. But eventually, there were a, couple of, a couple of weeks of this, and then I said, I, said to, uh, I said to the boss, I said, no, look, you're going to have to change the taxi driver. He's too crazy. He's, he's insane. He would turn up yeah, late. Yeah. He would turn up 10 minutes late. 
10 minutes late and I got 30 minutes to get there. He would still get me there on time, but the drive was just, it was white knuckle. It was yeah, a white yeah. knuckle ride every yeah. time. And I said, change to another, to another taxi driver. So they changed to this other taxi driver, this woman, and she had a newer car. And it was a woman driver. And she was the opposite. She was very cautious and slow, but she was getting to me there like 20 minutes late. I said, well, not that oh, either. Right. Um, and so in the end, I just drove myself. Oh. I just drove it myself. Um, and I found on the, on the, the little moped I had at the time, and I found that it was, I felt safer. I felt in control and I got there on time and I just said, we'll just do this. We'll just do this. So, so I've seen from quite a few of your tweets that you, you talk about the Taiwan traffic quite a bit with a couple of videos in oh. it. Um, the, the state of the driving. In fact, one I remember, I'm pretty sure it was Taiwan. It was, it's quite famous, probably about 10 years old now. And it isn't really anything to do with, uh, the standard of driving, but there was a landslide over a motorway. Oh yeah, yeah. You must have seen yes. it, and you see it in, in the first time you watch the video. You can actually, you don't spot it, but when it's pointed out and you watch it a second yeah. time, you can see in the top right of a corner a mountain just crumbles, yeah. and then a two minutes later, a rock the size of a house just lands oh. right in front of this car. Yeah, oh, there's a few. There's a, there's been a few similar incidents. I mean, that's insane. It's absolutely insane. Well, I mean, it's, yes. it's it's captured on that on that dash cam. It's I'll I'll, I'll find it and put a link there's, up. There's on a few of those. There's a few of those. So there's the the big the one you mentioned with the the mountain uh, the landslide. That's one particular one, but there's also, you know, houses inside of boulders the size of houses falling down and narrowly missing cars. There's a few of those. There's a few of those. Um, there was actually, uh, this is somewhat relevant to my research, of, uh, back in 2009, uh, a similar incident, not involving roads, but um, there was a mountain, there's a mountain in, um, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, Jiaxian district of Kaohsiung, which is up in the mountains, and uh, it's a rural district. They, there was a typhoon, typhoon Morakot, which in Chinese they Morakot, yeah. and this typhoon was special. I remember my mom. I was I just moved to Tainan from up from Kaohsiung, and I remember my mom calling me on Skype or emailing me, and, and she's asking me, um, "Are you okay? Are you all right?" I'm like, "Yeah, it's fine," and I hadn't been watching the news, so I I just assumed it was another typhoon. And, and I was doing, I forget what I was doing. I was doing normal things. Um, and so I just say, well, you know, we just, we just stay home. And where I was in Tainan City, it wasn't a particularly bad typhoon. There was a bit of rain, there was a bit of wind. It wasn't particularly bad. So I just stayed here, stayed home and I was, you know, I forget what I was doing, but I was, I didn't think much of it. And I, I, I didn't watch the news. And I saw the news later after my mom started emailing me. And I saw the news. I was, oh my God. Because uh, what had happened was, although the typhoon wasn't particularly large, and although the wind speed wasn't particularly anything out of the ordinary, um, it had been sustained over several days, the rainfall, but out, in, out right. in the mountains, not in the city, out in the mountains, it had, just, it had just hovered and just stayed in one place, and it just kept raining and raining and raining, but vast amounts of water for days on end. And it was it was the worst one we've had in about I think in about a hundred years or so. It was it was terrible. Right. And so what happened was um up in um Jiaxian, there's a there was a village called Shanlin. And I'd actually been through once a long time ago. Um this little village Shanlin and it was mostly Aboriginal people who lived there. 
and uh, the mountainside just collapsed and fell on top of them. It fell on top of the entire oh, wow. village, and the entire village was crushed. And there was no, there was no question of, of rescuing people. It was just, it was, yeah. it was just. I mean, you can go there today, and you can see it. You can see this huge pile of mud. There's trees growing out the top of it now. Um, it's about sixty feet tall, and see, yeah, and you yeah. can just behind it, you can see the mountainside from where it collapsed because the, there's this 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 large um, concave uh, like gap, you know where on either side there's trees and in this gap there's nothing. And that's the, the big section of the mountain that just fell. It just fell on this village and they just all died. And um, it was it's terrible. And nearby they have a, a memorial to all the people who died. But it was controversial at the time because there was a project related to the reservoirs. And the project was that they wanted to dig a tunnel through not that particular mountain, but a little further north there was a tunnel being dug. It was actually one of two tunnels to be uh, dug to connect the Laonong River to the east, on the east side of the mountain, to the west side of the mountain with the Chisan River, and then another tunnel going through further west to a stream on the other side, which would then run down to the Zhengwen River and into Taiwan's largest reservoir. So the, okay. so the basis for this was that um, Kaohsiung, the big city in the south, has a lot of people, has a lot of industry, and it has three very small reservoirs which almost don't qualify as such. I mean, they're very, very small. <clears throat> um, and one of them, in fact, is, is today is, is pretty much useless. Um, one of them gives water entirely all of its water goes to the uh, steel corporation that's there. They make steel. Uh, so the water there goes all the cooling okay. machines. But um, the other reservoir is, is Chengqing Lake, and it's, it's small. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to go into that because I, I know so much about it that it will take me. I'll be talking about that for another hour or so. So what happened was right. uh, Gaosheng just doesn't have enough water. They take all the water from the river, the Gaopingxi, which has uh, the largest volume of water of any river in Taiwan, but it's full of mud, and so it's really difficult because yep. you, you know, you got all the sediment, and you have to, to um, filter it all out before you can pump it to the city. Yeah. So there's only so much you can do at a time, um, and so they've got a real bottleneck over how much water they can supply to the city. And um, to solve the problem, they really need to have additional reservoirs further upstream where they can trap the water where it's still relatively clean, you know, and then they can pump it to the city or, or have pipes, and they can just use gravity. To, bring it down to the city. But they can't do it because every time a reservoir has been proposed, uh, various groups have um, opposed it. They've said, no, we, we don't have a reservoir here. So they've never been able to make them. And so altern the alternative that they devised was, we'll say, well, okay, what we'll do is if we can't build a reservoir to tap the water in the upper reaches of the, the Laonong River, which feeds into right. the Gaoping, and the Aliao River, which also feeds into the Galping. If we can't trap, if we can't build reservoirs to trap that water, then what we'll do is we'll build um, we'll build uh, weirs with uh, uh, penstocks, and we'll build tunnels, and we'll deliver some of the water through the mountains up to where we already do have some reservoirs up in Jai and Tainan. And then, okay. if the water can be delivered to those reservoirs, then we can have pipelines going south. And in, so and in one case, we already have one of those pipelines built a long time ago. And that pipeline can then bring some of the water back down 
to Gaussian where it's needed. So it's a roundabout okay. solution to the fact that you can't have reservoirs because some of them have been opposed. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that was the, the basis for it. So they started digging this tunnel, and um, they'd got, I don't know exactly how far they got through, through the mountain, but they got somewhere through the mountain. And then you had this terrible catastrophe with the uh, typhoon and the, the, the mountain collapsing on the people. And so there was an allegation. Is it the same mountain? Same mountain. So, so there was an allegation. Well, the, the tunnel is a little bit further to the north. This mountain is to, right. further to the south. But it's part of the same uh, system of mountains. You know, there's, there's, like a, there's a whole set of them. And so the claim was, people make the claim, that because the Water Resources Agency was building this tunnel, that that then made the mountain more unstable. But the problem with this claim is that there's no way to test it. It's not falsifiable because... If, if they hadn't been building the tunnel and you had this huge typhoon, the mountainside may have collapsed anyway. There's no way to know for sure. Sure. Because, it's, it's, because the, the, the volume of water that was falling was unprecedented. It was huge. Look, unless, unless the tunnel was having a major impact on the flow of water or the tunnel was really close to the bit that, f- that collapsed, uh, it's, probably it was not, a couple of, it's probably not related. I would have thought it was. It's difficult to tell, but it was... How far was it? Uh, I can't remember offhand. I think it was about... Was it metres or kilometres? Kilometres, not metres. Oh, right. Well, so, uh, yeah, a kilometre away. You're not, you're not doing uh, anything. Yeah. I mean, the, the geology changes massively over a kilometre. If, if it was 200 metres or 100 metres, then maybe you could maybe claim well, that, but it's a couple of kilometres well, well, away e- now. Either, I, I can't e- see either that. Way, either way, it's a non-falsifiable claim. There's no way to test it, right? So... So, what the government? What the- no, but but non non technical people are very good at making all kinds of claims. I remember the when we were in Sakhalin, the the Pacific grey whale that breeds once every thousand years and hasn't done you know in centuries. Mm. Greenpeace came out and said the reason they're not breeding for this particular year is that the vibrations of the bulldozers on shore constructing the LNG plant. Uh, affecting its libido or something. I mean, it's, yeah, you just try and work out the mechanism just, by what that happens. They've made that up. That's just yeah, they've made that up. Well, there was a similar one also in um, in Gaosheng. So one of the reservoirs that was proposed for Gaosheng was called Mainong Reservoir, which is in Mainong District. So again, not very manageable with the names, but um, they the proposal was actually to have a very very large reservoir. So it would have been in the order of about two hundred something million cubic meters, which for Taiwan, for other countries it's fairly small, but for Taiwan that's a big reservoir. And um, right. it would have used an off-stream design, so it would have been, I can explain that later, but it would have been really, really good. Um, but it was opposed because, on two grounds, or at least two grounds, one was earthquakes. They say, well, well you know, Mainong has some earthquakes sometimes. Um, well, yes, but so do many other places in Taiwan. And they have reservoirs, and what's happened? Nothing. The dams are still yeah. they're still standing. They're still fine. They're okay. Um, so that was an odd one. But the other one, they, the other claim they made was that the valley that the reservoir would be built in was the it's called the Yellow Butterfly Valley because it has a lot of butterflies. And they said, well, if you build the reservoir here, all the butterflies will um, they'll die, right? They'll have nowhere to live. Um, now, that may or may not be true, but what I found when I went to visit the site, what I found strange was that on the other side of the valley, there's another valley. Just like oh, just right. a few, full of butterflies. Yeah, just a few, uh, like a, a hundred right. meters or so away. 
Um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's just, no, I, I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not saying that I know for a fact that the butterflies could have adapted and moved over, but it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem out of the realms of possibility. So, well, butterflies are fairly mobile. Yeah, it's not like you're dealing right? with uh, you know. m- moles or I don't know gophers or something. Yeah, they it's just fine. fly over to the next valley. So, 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 how come? Yeah, this this is we've we've kind of we've kind of skipped a little bit in your in your career development because <laughs> last thing we heard you were doing checking the English on marketing materials. So that's what I do for yeah, that's, that's... medium sized companies, and 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 that, and but nowadays you you seem to work with reservoirs a lot. So. Okay, so my day job as such is helping companies with their marketing materials and their instructions, all their English stuff. That's what I do in my day job. I also have a couple right. of other little uh, – I also still do a little bit of work on the side teaching kids. Like just – like people I okay. know like ask me to teach their kids. I'm like, oh, okay, like once a week, you know, an hour or so. So I do that. And um, the reservoir stuff is actually my own hobby. It's what I do. I'm writing a book about the reservoir. So it's not my job. I don't get paid for it. Uh, oh right! All, okay. all the costs of doing the research of the travel and everything are all my costs. I pay for it everything out of my own pocket. I don't ask. I don't apply for government grants or anything like that. And um, so I've been doing this for a few years, and I started. Uh, I started when I. It was a little while after I moved to Thailand, and I bought a new camera, and I took the. I took the dog. With me, we went out to um, to see one of the reservoirs. I read a short. That's what it was. I read a short in the paper, little story about the uh, Nanhua Reservoir here in Tainan uh, being down to fifty percent in the summer. I said, oh, right. "Okay, let's go and have a look." I thought I was bored one weekend. I thought, "Let's go and have a look. We go and see." So just, I, I can take the new the new camera with me, just mess about, take some pictures. So I went out there, and that's what I did, and had a look, and. It struck me as the first thing I noticed was it compared to reservoirs that you would see back in England, like Derwent Reservoir, you know, up in the Pennines. Yeah, is that this thing is really small? But then you know, it's, it's okay. Taiwan. It's a lot. Everything is a lot smaller here. So, but for Taiwan, this is a large. Uh, this is a fairly large reservoir. So this is like the fifth largest reservoir in Taiwan. And um, you know, I was thinking, standing, thinking, I could swim across that. That's not that big. Um, and I went to see a couple of other reservoirs nearby. I took some more pictures, and I put them up on my blog at the time. And then I got an email from a fella, uh, Sam, Sam Sue, who's a, like a Taiwanese, a naturalized American who is originally from Taiwan, or his parents were from Taiwan. And uh, he was living, he's living out in San, in San Jose, and he's a real estate agent. And his father had worked for the Water Resources Agency years ago. And okay. he noticed he'd seen my pic- the pictures on my blog, and he emailed me, and he's uh, saying this, that, and the other, like, oh, it's a nice picture. And, and we were talking for a while, and he suggested that I go and see another reservoir called Agongdian Reservoir, which is a a transliteration into Chinese characters of a Taiwanese word, which just means grandpa shop reservoir. Right. So the word for grandpa in Taiwanese is agong, and shop is in Chinese dian. So agong dian is grandpa shop reservoir. And I said, oh, I've never heard of that. He said, Yeah, yeah, it's just down. There. It's it's close to Tainan. It's it's in uh, Gansheng, um, in Gaosheng. So 
I had a look on the map and I found it. And, uh, and I went down to see it with the girlfriend at the time. And, um, and I was fascinated instantly by it because it was, it's got the longest dam in Thailand, but it's very, very different from the others. It's, it's a very low, short earth dam. And it's about three point, I think it's 3.2 kilometers long. And uh, it has a very strange shape. And it's, it's, abs- it's absolutely terrible. Um, it's, it's absolutely terrible for a number of reasons. It's a very, very strange, it's a very, very strange reservoir. So it was started by, we started in 1942 by the Japanese. So it was during the war. They designed right. they, they, they carved out the site, they designed it, um, they started building it. Now the problem with the site is that you can see why they did it. The reason that they built it in this location, so where this location is, it's uh, in the uh, plains just before the foothills. Um, so the geography of Taiwan, it looks like, a, if, you, if you've ever seen a map of Taiwan or a picture of Taiwan, it looks like a sweet yep. potato. And most of the country, about 60 to 70%, is covered in mountains. So on the, yeah, on the, yeah. west, the west side of the country, you've got these plains running up along the west coast, these large flat plains where all the cities are and all, all the people are squeezed into these plains. And then the rest of the country is just mountains. And then you go into the east right. side and there's a very narrow strip of coastline uh, between the mountains and the ocean. Uh, and so the, this reservoir is in the plains, but it's just before the foothills to the east, just before the mountains. And they sighted it there because they'd already had a railway um, and the railway was used to transport sugarcane and, um, and other crops south to the port at Kaohsiung. And so they thought, well, wouldn't it okay. be convenient to have a reservoir here, uh, use the water to, uh, to, to feed all these some more additional sugarcane fields and other crops, and then it'd be very, very easy to get all the, 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 the crop and, and load it up onto the train and send it south to, uh, to the port in Kaohsiung. So that was the thinking. It was very straightforward. But the site is a very bad site because the two feeder streams to the reservoir originate from beneath a local muddy uh, volcano. Um, it's <laughs> a little uh, volcanic system, uh, Wushanding, nearby under these, um, these small uh, mountains, small hills. And it's just, uh, God knows how much sediment like this. this uh, you can see it. You can go there, there and it, you can go there today and it's still an active system. Uh, belching out all this, this mud, all this crap. And the stream just carries all this mud, all this sediment directly into the reservoir. But the Japanese must have just thought, they must have just thought, oh, well, fuck it, you know, it doesn't matter. It will, yeah. it, because if you've got a high, if you've got a high um, sediment content in your water, but you're only using that water for irrigation, well, it's not a big problem for most cases. It doesn't matter that much. Yeah, no. it doesn't really matter that much. Um, and in some cases, it might even help to... Uh, to enrich the soil as, as um, uh, so anyway, so they so they built um, Argonian Reservoir on this terrible site, but it wasn't wasn't terrible by their standards because they just wanted it for irrigation, but but yeah. today's standards, we don't want the water for irrigation. We want the water to to send to industry or to to use for resident for residential use, and today the reservoir is pretty much useless uh, because of that. Right, and so uh, about. 
13 years ago now, 13, yeah, about 13 years ago, the government completed a, a uh, desperate uh, Save the Reservoir project. They completed the project to try to manage the reservoir better. Um, and that involved a couple of things. So the first thing they decided to do was they decided the reservoir would have to be drained every summer. It would have to be drained rather before the summer rains were to arrive um, because the streams would carry so much water and so much sediment they would build up so quickly. And the apertures to release water, the uh, irrigation outlet and the uh, spillway outlet, to release water, you know, if the reservoir builds up too much water, you need to release the water. They were too small. And so they refer to it, to, there's one engineer, I know he talks about it as like a bathtub. You know, it's like a bathtub right. because the, the plug hole is so small, but you've got this huge bathtub full of water. So it, 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 it drains very slowly, but you've got these two, oh, streams, sure, yeah. these two streams at the back filling it up too quickly. So the rate yeah. that you can drain it is far less than the rate at which it fills up. And so what they have to do yep. is they have to drain it before the, sun, before the spring and summer plum rains arrive. And so it's basically useless. Um, so that was the first thing that they, they did. And they, to do that, they had to build an extra spillway at the back. So there's now three outlets letting the water out at the same time. Um, and then they would send in um, trucks and uh, excavators to dig out some of the sediment and transport it away, some of which they can sell. And some of it is actually quite valuable. They can use it to make certain types of concrete. There's a dude I know in Thailand, he has a company, and they take this sediment and they use it to make a breathable concrete. So he's got a type of concrete okay. that's breathable because of the, the qualities of the uh, sediment that they're extracting from the reservoir. Um, but the other thing that they did was they built a, uh, a transbasin diversion tunnel to take water from the other side of the mountains on the Chis, in the Chisan Valley, which is a valley further to the north and, and uh, east, and deliver that water into the reservoir. Now, it, that in itself is a really interesting project because what they had to do was, um, if we go back to 1978, they, the water, wasn't called the Water Resources Agency then, it was called the Water Bureau. What they did was they'd had an irrigation um, system in the Chisan Valley. So they would take water from the Chisan River at a weir further upstream called the UMA weir, which I think means right. eyebrow weir. And then they would irrigate the Chisan Valley. So the farms nearby, uh, they already had a lot of banana uh, plants famously for, for many, 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 many years, but they used the irrigation system for vegetables and for other things. But they built a tunnel through a mountain um, into neighboring Neyman district and they had a water gate set up there and the water gate would open and it would allow water to join into the Ursh, the Uren River. And the Uren River is the river that separates Kaohsiung from Tainan. So these two big towns right. are separated by this river, the Uren River. And the Uren River starts in the hills in Neyman and it was supplemented heavily by this irrigation canal in 1978. And the reason they did that was so that they could provide water to these factories downstream in um, Rondo district in the south of Tainan. 
and those factories will make okay. like batteries and paint and all, all kinds of things. So yeah, plenty need plenty of water. Yeah, so they need lots of water. So they they had that irrigation system supplement the Erin River, um, and that was that was pre-existing. That that was built in 1978, so that was there for a long time. But in 2006, 13 years ago, or so they took that Watergate in Amen and they built a tunnel underground, and it went under uh, Tianliao District to get to the reservoir. And Tianliao is famous right. in this is famous for this um, this place called Ruoshijie, which is uh, Moonscape World. And what it is is like if you if you've ever seen um, the Badlands in is it Nevada in the U.S. the um, oh. and I think they have uh, some, some in Spain the um, y- y- Utah I think it is Utah? Badlands. Okay, I think it's Utah. Yeah. So Utah, they. Um, they have something similar here, where you have these ridges, these mudstone ridges, with a little bit of vegetation, um, but they're highly—they um, have a very, very high rate of erosion. And so there's a couple of right. streams, um, but nothing much. And so you could not have the water diversion running through this district along the surface because of the high rate no. of erosion. No. So they had to dig a tunnel yeah. under the ground. Uh, to enter a stream, which then feeds into the back of the reservoir, to bring clean water. What's, what sort of what sort of size would these tunnels be in diameter? Uh, this particular one is about. Oh, I have to check the picture. I think it's about ten, or maybe a bit less than that. No, it's probably about seven, six or seven meters in diameter, maybe something like that. Oh right. Oh, so it's miles bigger than a pipe. Then. No, it's not a pipe. Oh, okay. Um, right. Because I, I know nothing about water transfer. I mean, I know quite a lot about pipes and pipelines. And the biggest pipe you're likely to ever see is about 48 inches, really. Over that, they start getting really difficult, maybe 60 inches. But So I see. So they're, they're transporting miles greater volume, so they need tunnels, which is a bit like, in fact, seven meters. That's the size of a, that's the size of a road tunnel. It's big, yeah. There's, um, that's huge. Oh, there's a bigger one in... Um Tsangwen Reservoir. So when so Tsangwen Reservoir, the largest reservoir in Taiwan now, they have um, that was also affected badly by the the typhoon Morakot that I mentioned earlier in two thousand nine, and it brought a lot of sediment into the back of the reservoir. But the the reservoir being so large, a lot of it settled at the back of the reservoir, but there's so much that a lot of it ended up collecting towards the front of the reservoir. Now the the reservoir already had when it was initially designed in the, the early seventh, it was built finished in the early 70s, but the initial plan it was drawn up in the 60s already had sluiceway tunnels to remove sediment from the front. But the problem, right. but the problem was that those two sluiceway tunnels were A, too narrow, and B, they didn't have a steep enough gradient to, to, to make sure that the, the, res, that the, the sediment would flow through. And so okay. it just... You know, if you've got enough sediment, not enough water, it, it just stops moving. So you've got the tunnel, it's got some sediment, and it just stops moving. You haven't got enough water to flush it out because uh, the, the gradient isn't large enough. And so yeah. they undertook a new project as the reservoir was still in operation to build a new sluiceway with a special, with a better gradient, but also it has a special uh, entry point, whether they call it the uh, elephant nose because of this the peculiar shape that it's designed. It looks like a sort of S-curve. And um, so they had to dig the tunnel for that, but they 
built a set of steel pipes, uh, pipe sections, and those yeah. were built at the back of the reservoir, Dapu, and they, they built them, they're 10 meters in diameter, huge, and, you know, they put these pipe sections together to make this uh, S-shaped S uh, elephant nose thing. And they floated it down on barges. They floated it down the reservoir to insert it into the tunnel um, so that you can have the, the water going through there. But um, that's another story. So, but about Agonian, yeah, basically Agonian is a terrible reservoir because of the site. But at the time, the Japanese thought it was fine for them because they just wanted local irrigation. They really didn't too yeah. much of it. But today, it's a, it's a nightmare. And today, they, they have to... They have to send extra water down from the Chisan Valley to, to try to flush the sediment out, to make it more efficient to flush the sediment out because there's more water coming through. And uh, they have to drain before the uh, plum rains open. Before the plum. So your, your interest in these reservoirs is it's, it's the aesthetics and the technical side of it. It's the whole lot by the sounds of things. Uh, every, every, everything. It's, 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 the more you dig into it, the more you find. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So is this is this something you don't you don't regret having studied I don't know <laughs> civil engineering I guess uh, and uh, and doing this full time? Well, I, to be honest, I never thought about it that way. Because um, uh, I'm I'm sure. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, this is way outside my field, but I'm sure that uh, that the question of maintenance and upgrading of dams mm. across the world is going to be a big subject. In years to come, because we're starting to see, I think a lot of these old dams are being reaching the end of their design life, or they haven't been maintained properly. And wasn't there one in California recently where the entire spillway oh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. got stripped yeah, out? Yeah. So the story with that, I, I can tell you about that. Um, the problem with that dam um, was that the they had um, they had the sluiceway, the, sorry, the spillway. They had uh, also underneath the dam. A hydroelectric power plant, which yep. also allows water to, to come out of the reservoir. And they had this stupid emergency spillway. Now, I use the word stupid, you know, obviously with the, the benefit of hindsight. I'm sure the engineers at the time had, you know, different ideas. But what the, what the dam really needed to have was a set of heavy-duty, large diameter sluiceways running underneath the dam to let water out into the valley so that you don't yeah because what you want to do is as the reservoir fills up with water uh the water at the bottom of the reservoir is going to be it's going to tend to have more sediment and the water at the top the near the surface of the reservoir is going to be fresh and be clean water so yes what you want to do is if you can avoid using the spillway because the spillway is the gates are at the top of the dam or near the top of the yeah. dam. And so you're going to be letting out the clean, fresh water at the top. So every time you see water coming out down a spillway, you're looking at the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars of, of water coming out there. That's, that's basically cash. Oh, right. Out, right. Okay. So, well, I've never, no, I've never seen it that way before. I just exactly. assume it's all so, free. So what you, what you want to do is you want to open up you want to have a set of sluiceways near the bottom of the dam that you can open up, open up and drain water, the dirty water, from the bottom of the dam. The problem is the pressure, because obviously the height... I was just going to say that. Yeah. The pressure at the bottom is going to be a hell of a lot enormous. more than so, at the top. So if you have a, a large... So, for example, if you've got a large 10-meter diameter um, 
uh, sluice way, uh, the, if the water, the, the, the force of the water moving against that, uh, at that depth, the pressure in some cases might just be enough to crush the actual uh, sluice way itself, the pipeline itself. And so yeah. the problem is you tend to end up with sluice ways that are narrower in diameter because of the pressure. Um, yeah. They had this problem with the dam in China uh, some years ago. And when, when you, you've got the dam and filled up with sedimент. And what happened was that the, towards the back of the reservoir, the sediment was, was so, so great that water was actually leaking out through the, the embankments of the reservoir and leaking out into the groundwater for the nearby farms and so on. So you're getting flooding. And, um, right. and so what they did was at the dam at the front of the reservoir, they removed the hydroelectric power plants and they wanted to instead just allow water to pass through, to pass through the, the dam just as a sluice way. But they found uh, a problem with the, the just the pressure the, because of the size of the thing and the, and the depth of the water, the, the pressure was immense. And so, yeah, it's a fun, it's a function. It's a it's a function of depth, yes. and it's a linear yes. rho g h. Yeah, I did. I remember this from my engineering calculations. So, just for the listeners out there who don't know much about this, the pressure at the bottom of the dam is a uh, is directly and linearly proportional to the depth of the water. Yeah. So the deeper your dam, the deeper the water at the foot of the dam, the the greater the pressure. Right. So what they had to do to try to try to uh, reduce, the, but it's also affected by the. Um, the uh, the speed of how the, how fast the water would move through through the reservoir, and so what they did was, right. what they did was they built um, a series of uh, like large interjecting baffling blocks along the sides of the reservoir, so that the baffling blocks would retard the uh, flow velocity of the water uh, to slow the water down and enabled the, the, the water to pass through the, the, the outlets at the front without too much pressure um, and enable them to survive the, the, the water passing out. So that was a huge project in China um, a few years ago. That wasn't, that wasn't the Three Gorges Dam? No? no, it wasn't. It was, I forget what's the name of it. Um, has, that, has that, tell me, has that Three Gorges Dam been a success or has it all silted up? I don't know. I don't hear much about that. When it was being built, it was like, it was just this incredible project and they freed up a billion dollars to move the Chinese. About 98% of it got pocketed by the local corrupt people and a couple of quid got chucked to the people who had to move. But I don't know if it was technically a success or not. I can't tell you. I can hear it. I've got my notebook here. The name of the dam in China was the um, San Menxia. Right. Okay. So actually, San, wait, 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 hold on. What am I talking about? Sandman, yeah, that's the same thing, isn't it? Anyway, never mind. Um. So. Uh, so yeah, that was. Uh, so so it's 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 something that um no it's because it's it's funny that you because I assumed I you obviously had this big passion for reservoirs because you've you've got this uh you're always posting pictures on Twitter of the various reservoirs and a load of technical information and commentary attached, which is, which is why, you know, I thought you thought it was quite an, quite a very niche subject, Taiwanese reservoirs. It doesn't get much more niche than that, especially for a foreigner. Um, and I assumed you were some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know what we call them, a hydrological engineer who's working out there 
trying to get these things fixed and maintained or something like that. I didn't realise it was a hobby. Oh no, no, no it's a hobby. Um, the, 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 yeah. maybe, maybe you should maybe you should have a chat with the Chinese, the Taiwanese water board, and say, look, you know, I probably know more about these things than half no, no, the guys no, no, working no. there. No, no, so the <laughs> the uh, no the the engineers. So the water resources agency has. Uh, they obviously have a lot of uh, very very capable engineers. Um, yeah. Yeah. They they they're, they're fine. Um, a lot of them are educated in the United States and speak perfect English. A lot of them are educated at home in Taiwan and they speak almost no right. English at all. So, uh, like, for ex- I'll give you a, a... One of the engineers that I spoke to for my work, uh, Paul Su, who lives up in Taipei, he has a large consultancy firm. Um, they get hired by the Water Resources Agency to consult on the, the redesigns and the remedial engineering projects at the large reservoirs. Um, he used to, oh, he used to work for what firm was it? Um, oh, Paul used to work for uh, no 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 American Swiss firm. It's American. Hold on. Yeah, he did his. Um, uh, yeah, he worked for Bechtel, but he did his. Yeah, he did his um, PhD in Iowa at the Hydraulic Engineering Institute, but he did his in the nineteen sixty eight, and Paul was telling me. Because a lot of my questions were also about the development of and the changes in design of the reservoirs over time. So if you look, if you look at all the reservoirs in Taiwan and you and you look at them in historical context, so which one was first, which one was you know later, you can see some patterns and changes in the design. And so I was in asking him right. about this because I, I was really interested in the um, why the designs were changed over time, and um, he was explaining to me that the Early engineers, including himself, all received their education in uh, Iowa and in the um, in the United States at the Hydrologi- Hydraulic Engineering Institute. And he went on to work for the uh, the what do you call it, the Tennessee River Valley Authority. Um, right. And so they all had an American education, and they were looking at American methods of constructing dams and and managing reservoirs. And he said, "Well, the problem is that the." Uh, the circumstances in which those designs are applicable are not the same as in Taiwan, in particular because the geology is very different. So in, in, in yeah. places like Tennessee, you're dealing with a very, with largely a stable geology with a very low rate of erosion. Whereas in Taiwan, especially in the south, from um, uh, Qi San and Gaoshan up to, uh, to Jiayi, uh, you're dealing with young sedimentary rocks that have very yeah, yeah, yeah. the rate of erosion is something like thirty times what it is in the in the U.S. and so you have to have different designs. But in the early days, this wasn't fully appreciated, um, and so. But there's also there's also a problem with reservoirs and dams is that your feedback loop is very long. I mean these are these are structures that are designed to stand for decades in which changes and uh, their performance can only be measured really in decades. If you design a plane or a machine or even an oil plant, you'll know whether it's a good design or not pretty quickly. But a reservoir, it might take you 20 years before you have enough data 
and um, yeah. and yeah. Uh, right. actual in-service right. performance. Right. And then you go, okay, we built in, we had a design in 1950. It's now 1970. We can now see how we're be- how we can improve it. So you would expect the the design to evolve, but it would have evolved far more slowly than perhaps other areas of engineering. Well, that's right up to a point. Um, so that point being that the engineers um, of the early reservoirs, I would say no, but of the, especially of the later reservoirs. So from about 1980 onwards, which was the year I was born, but from about 1980 onwards, um, different ball game. The, res- right. the engineers were able to anticipate a lot of the problems that were going to that would arise, and in fact, did actually arise later. So, I'll give you an example. The Nanhua Reservoir, which is the first reservoir I visited years ago here in Tainan, the design was actually the, the, the original design plan submitted in 1984 includes, and I have the, the photocopy somewhere, um, a second, or sorry, a third sluiceway. So it's designed, it's a large earth dam. Um, it has a couple of small sluiceways under the dam, very narrow, because for reasons of pressure we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, it has a large spillway at the top. And one of the problems is that the dam, it runs on a sort of north to south axis. At the north end of the dam, it connects to this a buttressing shoulder of a mountain, which which sort of right. bends at a curve. On the other side of that, that curve, they anticipated that there would be a buildup of sediment because the river is flowing in further to the north. And so as the river flows in, a large amount of sediment is going to tend to collect in that little bend in the mountain over time, like a little elbow, and it's going to collect right. over time. And so in the initial design, they proposed having a sluiceway to uh, dredge some of that, to drain some of that sediment. But the design was modified later because the government, at the time, they had, those, they had a few objections. And one of the objections was funding, which is going to be more expensive. Um, but, but another objection was, well, okay, but how much water are we going to have to sacrifice to be able to drain all the sediment. And it was quite a lot. And they said, well, that's counterproductive to having the reservoir in the first place. We want to keep the water in the reservoir, not use it to drain sediment. And so, yeah. and so it would have reduced the efficiency of the reservoir. Uh, and so that's why the politicians opposed it, and also because funding. Um, yep. And so it never got done. But now, 30, 30 years later, after Typhoon Morocco in 2009, they're having to build that exact same sluiceway that was initially proposed. I mean, there are a couple of details that will be different, obviously, but it's the same, it's exactly the same location as the original design, as the original proposal. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's it, ex- exactly the same dimensions. Um, and they're, I, f- I find it amusing that, reserv- that reservoirs have an efficiency. That's never occurred to me before. Oh, yeah. But of course they do. Yeah, they would do. But it's, it makes sense. But it's just never occurred to me that a reservoir has an efficiency. Well, it, well, yeah, it, has, it, would it has several. Um, I mean, yeah. what, the most obvious one actually is the value value for money of the dam. So if you take uh, yeah. Nanhua and the one I just mentioned, Nanhua and Zengwen, they actually have a really, really good efficiency in terms of uh, value for money of the dam. Because the dams, although they're very large, 
are comparatively small next to the size of the reservoir that they impound. You know? yes. So you've got a lot of water for uh, a very small uh, dam. Capital, capital cost of a dam, yes. yeah. And now there's a new one that's just been built uh, in Yunlin to the north. Uh, it's a little bit up the road from, from where I was. It's where I got sick last year. Um, they've, they've just built a new dam there uh, called Husan, Husan Reservoir. And in some ways, it's a, because it's, it's so recent, in some ways it's a fantastic design. It's an off-stream design. It, it's really, really good. It's not going to have sedimentation problems. Um, but the problem was the geography. There, there really wasn't any other location. There was one other location they could have built, but it would have had other problems. So they built it in this location. But to do that, uh, see, normally what you want to do, if, you, if you're going to build a dam in the, a reservoir in the mountains, you have a valley with mountains on either side that's going to hold the reservoir in place and then you pick a narrow spot between two mountains and you sure. dam. But here they can't sure. because they, you haven't really got mountains as such. You've got a set of hills, sort of mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a, almost like a, if you imagine the letter C, take the letter C yeah. and you turn it, uh, you turn it to the right. It's almost like that, but a bit shorter. So it's, it's kind of a cup coming around of hills. Yeah. And so the entire front, the entire face of the reservoir has to be propped, has to be dammed in with a dam. So you have this gigantic dam, this huge, it's the largest dam in Taiwan, it's vast. It's not the tallest and it's not the longest, but it's both very, very tall and very, very long. It's huge and it comes in different sections and the, the cost yeah. is enormous relative to the size of the reservoir that impounds. For Taiwan standards, but the, the reservoir is actually fairly, uh, so you would say it's a medium-sized reservoir. It's fairly small. It's of the order of 60 million cubic meters. So it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, for example, to give you perspective, uh, Dengwen Reservoir, the largest reservoir here, was initially, initially had a capacity of 700 million cubic meters, which is about a third of the size of Loch Ness. Um, right. And... Um, but this one... God, it's a big reservoir. It's a big reservoir. For Taiwan, it's a big reservoir. For Russia or Pakistan, it's nothing. Or the United States. Right, okay. But, um, but this little one in Yunlin, I mean, it's not a little one by the standards of Taiwan. It's a medium-sized one, but it's only 60 million cubic meters. So you're not actually impounding that much water, but the cost of the dam is so great. It's huge. So it's really, compared to other reservoirs, it's really bad, it's really poor value for money. But they build it anyway yeah. because... They built it anyway because it was still cheaper than the alternative of having a desalination plant. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That, yeah. so that's the that that was the rationale, and of course it's a lot easier. In fact, that plan for that reservoir that's just been built, it only finished. It was only completed um, the end of last year. Um, right. It's very new. And in fact, the I'm sure this is an area of engineering as well, where computer modeling has helped the engineers a lot, particularly with regards to the. Uh, the hydrodynamics, the um, the oh, the build-up of sediment over time. I mean, th this this is an area. It's when you said that in the eighties, you know, p that the excuses started dropping off. I imagine by the nineties there was some there was some pretty decent software, finite element modeling software. You could model the dam, you could model the behavior of the water, the sediment build-up. You could model the size of the uh, the sluiceways, the pressures on them. Yes. It must have been a lot easier for them than trying to do a lot of guesswork. Well, I, 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 that may be true. Um, I mean, I actually spoke to the uh, 
the chief engineer who was at the time was the director, the head, the, the chief director of the Water Resources Agency, who built, was in, he was responsible largely for the design of Nanhua Reservoir. And he told me, um, and I have his, um, his, uh, his memoirs in front of me behind the laptop now. And he said, right. he said, no, he knew that it was going to have the sediment problem exactly where it was going to occur. And he knew exactly what the solution had to be. But you couldn't do it because, one, cost. Cost. And, and yeah. two, yeah. and, and, and in, in fairness to the politicians, that was a more reasonable objection in the 80s than it is today. Obviously, the government, it's a, Taiwan is a much richer country today. We can more easily afford to do that kind of thing today than they could 30 years ago. Um, but also, uh, you know, if, if you're a politician and an engineer is telling you, look, you need to spend, you need to spend an extra X billion amount of dollars to build this uh, sluiceway, and you ask him, well, why? And he says, because uh, this sedimentation problem, you, you might ask him, well, has this been done anywhere else in the world? And then he has to come back to you and say, no, it's never been done before. Or, or the question will be, okay, this is going to be a sedimentation problem. When? And if you say in 15 yeah. years, you go, okay, right, yeah. well, also, someone else's problem. Also then. that, yeah, yeah, also that, exactly. So um, so I, I'm not sure that the computer modeling made much uh, difference. But it may no, have, it may I, I mean, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean in that particular example. I mean, just in general, in the global, oh, yeah. worldwide reservoir yes. management and dam and, en- and design and engineering that must have been a godsend for them, particularly the hydrodynamics. Because, um, okay, a dam's a dam. You can probably model that on a whiteboard if you know you without too much trouble. But a but the the behaviour of fluids mm. with suspended solids in that that's probably an area where you really could do with some good computer modelling, yeah. and that that would that would have helped a lot. But I think um, yeah. that's that's. I th- it'd be it's, but dams are always going to be an interesting one because they're. The problem is there's probably not a huge amount of money in it. At the end of the day, unless you're building one for industry, like a nuclear power station or a uh, aluminium plant, ultimately the end consumers are the general public and they are psychologically always going to expect water to be cheap. Mm. Um, they think it falls from the sky, so it should be free and getting them to pay for it is going to be difficult. And any dam or nearly all dams are going to have to be paid for ultimately by a municipality of some sort, which automatically means you've got politics and cost concerns uh, involved from the outset, unlike, say, an oil platform where, well, politicians (laughs) don't care. It's all just, you know, it's people can see the dollar signs at the end. So it's probably an area which probably doesn't pay very well if you're an engineer, unfortunately. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of work and good interesting technical work in terms of maintaining a lot of these dams but i bet you speak to one of them and they say that trying to get money from the municipality is like pulling teeth yeah because well you'll be going to the local local uh the water the water authorities will be going to the local politician and saying hey we need to maintain this dam immediately what happens if we leave it five years oh well it'll get worse but 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 will it break no okay kick the can down the road and um, I expect there's a lot of dams in the world which should have been maintained properly by now, which haven't been. Um, you certainly see that with yeah. bridges over highways. Yes, yes. And there's, there's probably some of, some, some of that going on. In Taiwan, I mean, the, the problem here that, that I found in, in talking to the engineers is not a lack of funds, although that's, that's there. That, 
that's not the primary problem. The primary problem right. is um, like so. Last year, I was at the Water Resources Planning Institute in uh, Zhanghua, and they were telling me um, they were showing me all these other projects that they've got planned. And I was blown. I was excited. I was blown. I was like, "Wow, that's pretty cool. That's that's awesome." And um, you know, so for example, there was um, a project. Uh, there's two projects in particular I'll tell you about. One was um, something called Suwen Reservoir, which was a project that was designed years ago. It was it was it was planned first planned in the 80s, and um, it's in uh, an area to the south, the southernmost county in Taiwan, Pingdong. Um, they there's an area in the mountain high up in the mountains where an Aboriginal tribe lives, and they they are called they call themselves the Shuwen tribe, or their the Chinese name is the Shuwen tribe. And so up in those mountains, they plan to build a large reservoir there. And I've I've been to the site, visited the site, and it's it's stunning, absolutely stunning. That this it's like a almost a wilderness, pristine wilderness area. It's fantastic, it's amazing. Okay. Um, they were going to build a reservoir there, and what they were going to do. The reason for it was that the north of Pingdong has a lot of groundwater and it has a lot of farmers, um, and the farmers are pumping groundwater. And the problem with pumping groundwater is that you get um, land subsidence, so the, the land tends to yeah, subside sure. because you pump all the water out, and, and they take your water. Out. Yeah, and you can't, and you they're, they're, they can't monitor that they can't charge the farmers for it. They can't, you can't enforce it because they could just dig wells anywhere they want and pump it out whenever they want. So yeah. they, they thought, well, look, if we can build another reservoir uh, in the, in the, somewhere in the area, then we can deliver surface water to them so they don't have to rely on groundwater. We can have, that can help to solve the problem. And so um, they had this plan to build this reservoir and um, they couldn't go through with it because of opposition from the local Aborigines who live there. The Aborigines said no. Um, and, you know, because of the uh, past in the way that the Aborigines were deprived of their lands by various governments over the years, there's um, a great sensitivity about overruling the wishes of the Aborigines. You can't really get away with it. Uh, and so similarly, up north, there's another reservoir called Suman Shaker, which is um, probably the most famous one in Taiwan. Uh, if you if you go on YouTube, if you ever look if you look for like um, if you look for videos of, of dams, you know, and spillways in operation, you know, showing the water coming up the spillway, it looks spectacular. They always show the same sets of dams, and Suman Reservoir is always yeah. one of them. It's the one in Taiwan. Okay. It's always one of the, the, the those videos. So it's quite famous, and. Um, that reservoir is actually in a really, really bad state because of sedimentation. Um, and there's something that needs to be done about it. And so what they, the engineers planned to do was to build another reservoir uh, in the mountains of Shinzu further to the south and have the stream that feeds, the river that feeds Shimen, they would divert it and bring that river into this new reservoir so that you would cut off the feed, the feed water to Shimon Reservoir. You could drain the Shimon Reservoir, and you could clean it up, and you could carry out some, it would make it easier to carry out some remedial engineering projects. And in the meantime, you've got the water being saved in a second reservoir to the south, uh, Gaotai, it was going to be called Gaotai Shweku, Gaotai Reservoir. But again, 
it didn't get built because of opposition from the local Aborigines. And so that's the primary problem with um, building new dams and reservoirs today is opposition from environmental groups on the one hand and, and then opposition from the Aboriginal groups. When the Aborigines oppose something, then, you know, that's pretty much... Well, that's, that's, that's exactly the same in a lot of places. I mean, in Australia, for example, I mean, there's plenty of money, there was plenty of money to build LNG plants onshore and stuff. But as soon as you get the Aboriginal claiming this is a sacred rock, that's it. You know, all of a sudden the project's thrown into two-year delays and claims for compensation. So that's probably true well, everywhere. It is. It, it um, is. But and, and one of the frustrations for me, because I, because I got into a lot of detail in this, one of the frustrations for me uh, with the, among, with the other foreigners is that they, you can't really say anything bad about the Aborigines because um, it's considered, a, you know, a four parts. It's considered not good form to say anything. But, you know, the... Um, there was a project, I remember, I think you commented on Twitter to me about this uh, sometime last year. There was, there was a, one of the, uh, the, the fact that I mentioned this earlier, the tunnel project that was going to take the, the water from the Laonong River in Kaohsiung through two tunnels, two sets of tunnels, uh, and to feed into Zengwen Reservoir to bring the water from the Laonong River up into Jai and back down to Kaohsiung. That project, so I mentioned that earlier, that tunnel that some people said was they have facilitated the collapse of that mountainside onto the village. That tunnel yeah. was two tunnels. The, the first one got cancelled. The second one on the Chisan Valley side, that tunnel got completed. They spent the money to complete that tunnel. I was there. I was taking the pictures. I was on site. I talked to the uh, people who were there. They completed that tunnel and immediately they mothballed it. Because the Aborigines, ah. the Aborigines, they they allowed the tunnel to be the, the construction to begin, and then later they said they opposed it that, that because the oh, water bureau yeah. wanted what they wanted to do. Once the first tunnel was cancelled, you see, because I try to explain it a bit better. So what you've got up in the mountains, you've got these two valleys that run parallel. One has the Laonong River to the east, and one has the Chisan River to the west. Okay, so you've got these two valleys running in parallel. The two rivers come down, and then there's another river further, to, another valley to the east, sort of at a right angle, the Alian River. And then those three rivers, they join it together in a confluence to form the Gaoping Shi, the Gaoping River, which is the, where Gaoshun gets its water from. Yeah. But at that point, it's, too, it's, it's, it's heavily laden with sediment. And so if you can trace those three source rivers back, further upstream, dam the, that water, they'll collect that water in some way there, that's going to be a lot better because that's clean, that's good water. So um, the tunnel project had two, two, two tunnels. The first was to take water from the Laonung River, which is the river in the valley to the east. The tunnel was going to take the water to the west into the next valley where you have the Chisen yeah. River. The tunnel would then have to go over a bridge across the Chisan River, ignoring it entirely. So the bridge would bring the tunnel across the river, across the Chisan River, and then dig another tunnel, the second tunnel, into that mountain, uh, and then exit into a stream on the other side for the west. And so it's running at a sort of north, uh, east to northwest, northwest angle. And 
the first tunnel, the east tunnel from Nalong, from the Lanlong River Valley to the Chisang Valley got cancelled after 2009, after the, uh, the typhoon and the, the landslide. But the second tunnel was completed uh, just a couple of years ago, about three years ago now. And the idea was in completing the second tunnel, we can nonetheless rig a new weir and penstock system on the Chisan River and divert some of the Chisan River water into that second tunnel. So we can get some benefit yeah. anyway, so that we haven't wasted the money entirely. So the yeah. Aborigines allowed that project to commence, and then later they opposed it. And so I didn't even know Taiwan had, had Aborigines. What do these guys look like? Do they run around in loincloths with bows and arrows? What do they, what do, they do? Or are they, are they more like the... I can't even imagine. Do they look Chinese? Uh, okay, so my girlfriend isn't Aboriginal, but she's um, she's more synthesized. So she's you know, she's more integrated into. She speaks Chinese perfectly, and she's she's integrated. But are they are they ethnically different? Yes. Uh, they, oh right. They can okay. tell them apart. They have uh, darker skin. They have uh, right. more rounded eyes, more like larger rounded eyes, darker skin, and um, that's about it, really. And what's their, what's their level of development? Uh, it's mixed. So you, you, you have a lot of... The Aboriginal population today is far greater than it ever has been in the past. Um, so it's okay. a developed society now. But the Aboriginals, you've got... Some of them will move away from the mountains. They'll move into the cities. And then they're treated the same as everyone else, right? You, you, you right. get a job, okay. you get a house, you, you know, buy a car, whatever. Yeah. But um, there are still some uh, Aboriginals who choose to remain up in the mountains. And yeah. they, um, they, have, uh, they still get by on um, a sort of uh, agricultural economy. They have some tourism. Right. Some of it is uh, like showy, like a garish sort of Western tourists going to see them and they perform dances and stuff. Oh, yeah, and yeah. There's, yeah, there's yeah. a little bit of that going on still. Um, some of the tourism is a bit more enlightened than that, um, and some of it is some of some of the Aboriginals um, are also Christian groups. So there's one um, group, there's one group in particular in um, Gaoshan up in the mountains uh, in Namasha, and they're called oh, what are they called? Um, I forget the name. Oh, the Mount. They call themselves uh, or the area where they live. They call it Mount Zion. And they're, they're oh, right. a Christian oh. religious group of Aboriginals, but they are um, weird. I, I've been there once. I've been there once, <laughs> and it was weird. Like uh, it was disturbing. So you'd go there, you'd you go in, and you pay the money and everything to go in. And it's not much, but you know, you go in, and um, it was quite popular. There's a lot of people there, and they'd take all the school children out, and they they do these dances for the tourists. And you, they, you look at their faces, though, and their faces are expressionless. Or when they would smile, you can tell it's like a, it's all fake smiles. And it just struck me as somewhat creepy, you know? Um, so, yeah, it sounds like a cult, yeah. some kind of hill cult. Yeah, like a cult. Um, and so I, I, I didn't like it at all, but um, then I drive past that. Well, my, my, guess is, my guess is if the China, mainland China ever did take over Taiwan... And they decided to start doing water supply projects. Concerns from the Aborigines they get rolled over straight away. Yeah, they, would be would be brushed off in pretty short order. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, 
<laughs> yeah, I can imagine that would be the case. Yeah. But it's um and something else just for us, you probably need to wrap this up in the next ten minutes or so. Something you mentioned you mentioned quite a bit is that there's quite a lot of anti Western sentiment or anti American sentiment among kind of local hipsters in Taiwan. Uh I wouldn't say local hipsters, but among did I say that? I don't think I said Well, students. No, no, you probably didn't. That's probably um, me just having a bash at hipsters. Was it, But it's young people, isn't it? Uh, no, it tends, to be, it tends to be slightly older people. So, so no. I've got to be careful about generalizing again, but you, you, I, I don't really know. I can't, I can't really give you any numbers on this, but um, I find... I live in Thailand, so I'll try to explain. The, in the north of Taiwan, Taipei, Thailand, so on, Traditionally, or for, for at least for many, many years, the way it was was that Thai, people in Taipei and the north generally would typically vote blue. So you have two major parties in Taiwan. You have the, the Kuomintang, which is the, Chi, the Chinese Nationalist Party. Their color is blue. And then you have the DPP, which is the Minxingdang, the Democratic Progressive Party, and their color is green. And the... DPP uh, traditionally, for many, many years, took their support in the south, where I am, here in Tainan, and Kaohsiung, Pingdong, Jiayi. And in the north, uh, it tended to be more, uh, people, people who tended to vote more for the Chinese Nationalist Party. And so the country was split sort of along a north-south axis. Right? So you'd have people... And the Chinese Nationalists want to be part of China? Not quite. The Chinese nationalists right. um, are split, so there are different factions. And one faction among them, yes, would like to be reunified in some way with China. Perhaps some of them think okay. that they would be given cushy jobs, you know, if they, if they, in the event of an actual annexation. I shouldn't use the word right. unification because uh, no, it'd be an annexation yeah. because because Taiwan was never a part of the people. It's never China. part. No. No. Uh, it was part of the Qing Dynasty, uh, yeah, uh, between uh, 1683 and uh, 1895, um, yeah. and then you have the uh, Republic of China. The nation, Chinese nationalists from China retreated to Taiwan. They left. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they came to Taiwan, and some people consider them a colonial uh, government. But I don't want to get too far into that into that uh, rabbit hole. But no. Oh. So you so you got that the general distinction between north and south, and then also overlaid on top of that was a, a not an ethnic distinction, but a um, I'm not sure what the word would be, but the P Chinese people whose ancestors emigrated to, to Taiwan before 1945. So that would be between about 1600 to 1945. Uh, right are considered Ben Shenren. So they are considered uh, sort of local Chinese, like Taiwanese. They okay. And then right. the Chinese people who emigrated to Taiwan, whose ancestors emigrated to Taiwan after 1945, they're considered Wai Shenren, which is like outside Chinese. And so... Still? Uh, it's l that distinction is, is less strong today than it used to be, but uh, there's, that, there's that, that, is, that underlies the difference in the voting patterns. So if you were right. Wai Shenren, you would tend to live in the north and you would tend to vote Kuomintang. And if you were Ben Shenren, 
you tend to live in the south and you tend to vote Minting Dang, you tend to vote uh, DPP. So okay, so there was that. That was the, the main fault line of Taiwanese politics for, for a long, long, long time. But it's starting to change. It's been changing quite a bit. And um, a lot of young people who you would say that their family are white in red, nonetheless will vote Minting Dang, they'll vote DPP, they'll vote Green. And um, similarly, well, it's all a bit mixed up. So the young people, I, I don't know what to say about them in particular, other than a lot of them seem to be drawn to um, some of the same leftist, like far left identity politics stuff that you see playing out in the in UK and the United States, which is... Uh, and where are they getting that from? Is that coming from mainland China or no, from the US? It's not coming from the China. It's coming from it's coming from the US and Europe. So what happens is the uh, right the parents. So if you're a Taiwanese, if you've got wealthy, if you've got fairly wealthy parents, they send you abroad. They send their kids abroad. Sure. Uh, the states sure. or to uh, to Europe, and if they go into the states, they typically end up going to California. Um, and, uh. and yeah, and so they end up enrolling in universities. And then they absorb this uh, identity politics nonsense, and then they bring it back to Taiwan. And and I think part of part part of what makes me um, annoyed about this is that I mean I'm less I'm somewhat less annoyed with the young people themselves because when they're leaving they're like 18, so they don't have they don't have much experience of the, of, of the world around them yet, so they're more vulnerable, they're yeah. more easily susceptible to this sort of stuff. But I blame the parents to some degree because the parents should know better. They should be more aware of what's happening in the United States and in Europe. But they're not. Uh, they tend to be. No. They tend to be quite um, insular and uh, parochial. And and you can see this years and years ago when I first arrived. I was in Kaohsiung. I remember this may have been 2006, 2007. I remember picking up a newspaper and. Um, and I remember specifically buying a newspaper because uh, there'd been some news about uh, North Korea conducting its first nuclear test. So, oh, well, what yep. are they going to say about this? So I picked up a paper, and the story was on the front page, but it was at the bottom in a small, it was relegated to the bottom of the front page in a little square at the bottom. The, the frontline article, the top article was about crabs, about uh, Chinese <laughs> crabs. There was some problem with importing them, and it was going to make the prices more expensive. That was that was the right. headline story. And the thing about North Korea having a nuclear test was was at the bottom of the page. I was like, oh, what? you know. So um, that's so you so there's a lot of uh, insularity among these. See, see that, that's quite that's quite interesting because um, where I was thinking this morning when I was just thinking about what we'll talk about on the podcast is you've got this anti-Americanism among students in a section of South Koreans. They, there's a faction in Korea, I don't know how big they are, but they're sizable, who think that the problems with the North are really being antagonized by America and that if America sort of stayed out of it, they'd be able to patch up their problems with the North, which is, is highly unlikely, but then people believe all kinds of nonsense. And that seems to be more fashionable it certainly was a decade or so ago. That seemed to be more fashionable among the the students, the younger radicals. And I remember quite a, an interesting event happened, which I wish I'd grabbed the newspaper article of it uh, when it was still online. During the Iraq war, about 2004, where things were starting to get messy in Iraq, 
Donald Rumsfeld went to Korea and got off the plane, there was this massive protest by all these students about how America should pack up and go home. And I think his remark was, you know what, that's not a bad idea because you've got all these soldiers tied up here. We could use them in Iraq. And he kind of mentioned that to the whoever was president or prime minister. Well, the protests were gone in pretty short order after that. It was like, because, I mean, and and I wondered if it was a similar thing in Taiwan, but it sounds as though it's not. It sounds as though it's a lot more complex than that. So I had uh, a discussion with um, with someone recently. One of the, the the I mentioned this earlier, actually. The the, the guy at uh, the company on Monday, and one of the things he said was um, he complained. He said that um, uh, Taiwan pays the Taiwan paid twice as much for the purchase of F sixteen fighters in nineteen ninety two than other countries did. And so this last week, I checked that. And I, I, I dug through a few websites. It took me a while to find, um, because you can't actually, it's really difficult to find um, costs for these procurement programs. But I eventually found, yeah. I, found a num- I found a number, I can't speak to whether it's accurate or not, but the number I found was 5.8 billion, and that was for uh, 150 aircraft. And uh, I looked for the okay. South Korean one, and the South Korean one they purchased now it's slightly complicated because the the website where I found the number they they give the number as five point five billion U.S. dollars uh, from nineteen ninety four to two thousand, and so it's about the same time as the nineteen ninety two purchase for Taiwan of the F sixteens, but uh, they only ordered one hundred and forty aircraft. But there's another website where if you look at the purchasing program for the South Koreans, it was actually one hundred and sixty aircraft. So I'm not quite sure whether that number how accurate that number is. But if we go with it anyway. 140 aircraft for 5.5 billion and uh, uh, 150 aircraft for 5.8 billion. It's very similar. In fact, the Taiwanese yes. the Taiwanese purchase ends up being slightly cheaper. But um, there you go. You know, and he, he, but he but he he had it stuck in his mind for whatever reason that Taiwan had paid through the nose for the X-16s and that Ta- and that America was always selling junk to Taiwan and it's too expensive and so on. And that just seemed to me to be. Uh, suspicious. That's why would they do that? Now that seemed to be sort of like something that you would make up to support your. Uh, well, wouldn't be wouldn't we be better off if we just became part of China anyway? Because look at China's economic growth. Um, but I mean, the thing about that is, China's economic growth has been huge, but it's probably not going to keep going like that for for very long no of course it isn't it's already down to about six percent down from whatever it's double digits um and they've gone through the same thing that taiwan did where they went from agriculture to making crap toys to then making higher end stuff and as they start making higher end stuff they'll see their economy slow down and also their their population is getting older they're going to know aging yeah so that's not gonna. But the thing, the thing is, with with the leftist politics getting into, I mean, if the Taiwanese, if there's a subsection of Taiwanese who think America's the problem, then then they've got the they've got the same solution as the as the Koreans have. They can just simply get enough numbers and ask them to leave. I don't. I'm not, not sure quite. too many Americans would be too upset if the Taiwanese said we don't want you to provide us with F-16s anymore, especially the way things are going in America. Yeah. So, but of course, well, well, that's never going to happen well, because a, the majority Taiwanese. There's a slight difference there because the Americans have a, an air, they have a, a base in South Korea, but there's no American bases in Taiwan. So 
Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it'd be too too controversial. So they the Americans supply Thailand every now and again with uh, upgrades and with equipment and so on and bits and pieces. Um, they've been reluctant to sell new fighter jets since 1992. So um, uh, there's the Taiwan Relations Act, which says that, Taiwan, that the United States must uh, supply Taiwan with, Taiwan with uh, uh, articles of a defensive nature. So airplanes, missiles, and things, um, and that the United States opposes the use of force to resolve the, the, the issue yeah. between China and Taiwan. So there's an ambiguity there. And so the policy of the last 40 years or so has been strategic ambiguity of the Americans saying, well, we're not going to say what we're going to do. We're just going to say, in the event of a, a conflict where China tends to annex Taiwan, the Americans have said, well, we're not going to say what we're going to do. We're just going to send an yeah, aircraft exactly. carry a which is, which, is quite, which is quite a sensible policy. Yeah. You just keep it ambiguous we'll, so the Chinese can't plan for it. We'll send a couple of uh, destroyers or an aircraft carrier battle group through the Tehran Strait. And we'll say it's international waters. We'll send those ships through the Strait. And we will not say, you know, with, whether we agree with uh, China or we agree with Taiwan. We just oppose the use of force. So that policy has worked, um, but... There are different various people saying that the Americans should consider changing their policy now. I'm not sure. Well, I hope I hope if and when that happens, hopefully it won't happen. But if it does, hopefully you're out of Taiwan by then, um, or you're not, and you can greet your old university mate uh, running up the beach with his rifle. <laughs> his rifle has just been handed to him straight from the armory and probably won't fire. Um, and because he hasn't checked it and you can greet him on the beach and he'll say i told you so but it's uh yeah anyway it's 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 been it's been fascinating talking to you because it honestly taiwan's a place i know so little about i'm sure my listeners don't know a lot about it either it's um it doesn't have a lot of western tourism it doesn't seem to pop up on the global map I could, in any yeah. particular I mean, I could way. I could talk about it for hours. I could, I could talk about it for hours. Uh, it's just, it's just well, we have. Yeah. We have. Yeah. <laughs> and, and my phone's nearly on the battery. So, yeah, we better, we, better call it, we better wrap this up. But um, So we can, we can do it again because there's, there's a couple of things I wouldn't mind revisiting there, actually. There's a few other things that I wouldn't mind oh, talking to you. So we can do it again in the future. Yeah, and I, I didn't really uh, get into the reservoir stuff in, in too much detail. I just mentioned a few things. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much. So, um, I mean, I could talk about it for hours. Um, and there's other things as well. It's just, uh, there's so much, there's, there's so many, Taiwan is so, it's so interesting that I've never regretted the decision to come. I mean, I may have regretted early on when I had that, uh, that nastiness at the first time. Yeah. But, um, but since then, I've never regretted being in Taiwan. I mean, it does have its problems from time to time, but, um, you know, it's just so, it's so interesting. And the people overall are really friendly and there, i mean some really spectacular instances of people helping me out over you know over the years um it's just really remarkable i mean like for instance um my i once broke down on my motorbike and i got a flat tire wasn't it the flat tire it was a sunday on a national holiday and i was in the middle of nowhere in the mountains and i was pushing the bike and it would have taken me hours and hours and hours to get back to the nearest town. And uh, this, there was a, a couple of blokes on a truck, and they were going out to the some village somewhere to, to pick up a refrigerator to take it back to the city to get it repaired. And they 
just happened to drive by me and they saw me pushing this motorbike with a flat tire. And it's the old motorbike, I'm getting rid of it since, I got a new one. But so they saw me, they stopped in the middle of nowhere and they picked me up, put me on the, the back of the motorbike, tied it down and everything for me, and drove me all the way back to the city. Dropped me off outside a, a repair shop, stuck the bike in the repair shop, and then went back to pick it up the next week. Uh, brilliant, you know, brilliant, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, well, good, good for you. I mean, it's good, good to find a place that you can, yeah, especially kind of an exotic place like that that you can fit into and settle down there. No, it's it's always good. It's and that's it's one of the good thing about you know having international people come and visit the blog. I mean, everybody's got a story of where they are and why they're there and. And in, in to various degrees, people tend to sort of settle into a kind of a, yeah, kind of niche lifestyle. It's always, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. I really appreciate that. No and, um, yeah, no bother. We'll wrap this up then. So thanks to all my listeners. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll catch you next time. Okay. Bye-bye.